I carried those words with me back to Washington, where a mood of surrender increasingly prevailed, at least when it came to getting a health care bill passed. The Tea Party had accomplished what it had set out to do, generating reams of negative publicity for our efforts, stoking public fear that reform would be too costly, too disruptive, or would help only the poor. A preliminary report by the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, the independent, professionally staffed operation charged with scoring the cost of all federal legislation, priced the initial House version of the health care bill at an eye-popping $1 trillion. Although the CBO score would eventually come down as the bill was revised and clarified, the headlines gave opponents a handy stick with which to beat us over the head. Democrats from swing districts were now running scared, convinced that pushing forward with the bill amounted to a suicide mission. Republicans abandoned all pretense of wanting to negotiate, with members of Congress regularly echoing the Tea Party's claim that I wanted to put Grandma to sleep. The only upside to all this was that it helped me cure Max Baucus of his obsession with trying to placate Chuck Grassley. In a last stab Oval Office meeting with the two of them in early September, I listened patiently as Grassley ticked off five new reasons why he still had problems with the latest version of the bill. Let me ask you a question, Chuck, I said finally. If Max took every one of your latest suggestions, could you support the bill? Well, are there any changes, any at all, that would get us your vote? There was an awkward silence before Grassley looked up and met my gaze. I guess not, Mr. President. I guess not. At the White House, the mood rapidly darkened. Some of my team began asking whether it was time to fold our hand. Rahm was especially dour. Having been to this rodeo before with Bill Clinton, he understood all too well what my declining poll numbers might mean for the re-election prospects of swing district Democrats, many of whom he'd personally recruited and helped elect, not to mention how it could damage my own prospects in 2012. Discussing our options in a senior staff meeting, Rahm advised that we try to cut a deal with the Republicans for a significantly scaled-back piece of legislation, perhaps allowing people between 60 and 65 to buy into Medicare or widening the reach of the Children's Health Insurance Program. It won't be everything you wanted, Mr. President, he said, but it'll still help a lot of people and it'll give us a better chance to make progress on the rest of your agenda. Some in the room agreed. Others felt it was too early to give up. After reviewing his conversations on Capitol Hill, Phil Shaliro said he thought there was still a path to passing a comprehensive law with only Democratic votes, but he admitted that it was no sure thing. I guess the question for you, Mr. President, is do you feel lucky? I looked at him and smiled. Where are we, Phil? Phil hesitated, wondering if it was a trick question. The Oval Office? And what's my name? Barack Obama? I smiled. Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm here with you in the Oval Office. Brother, I always feel lucky. I told the team we were staying the course. But honestly, my decision didn't have much to do with how lucky I felt. Rahm wasn't wrong about the risks. And perhaps in a different political environment, on a different issue, I might have accepted his idea of negotiating with the GOP for half a loaf. On this issue, though, I saw no indication that Republican leaders would throw us a lifeline. We were wounded. Their base wanted blood. And no matter how modest the reform we proposed, they were sure to find a whole new set of reasons for not working with us. 
More than that, a scaled-down bill wasn't going to help millions of people who were desperate. People like Laura Klitschka in Green Bay. The idea of letting them down, of leaving them to fend for themselves because their president hadn't been sufficiently brave, skilled, or persuasive to cut through the political noise and get what he knew to be the right thing done, was something I couldn't stomach. At that point, I'd held town hall meetings in eight states, explaining in both broad and intricate terms what healthcare reform could mean. I'd taken phone calls from AARP members on live television, fielding questions about everything from Medicare coverage gaps to living wills. Late at night in the treaty room, I pored over the continuing flow of memos and spreadsheets, making sure I understood the finer points of risk corridors and reinsurance caps. If I sometimes grew despondent, even angry, over the amount of misinformation that had flooded the airwaves, I was grateful for my team's willingness to push harder and not give up, even when the battle got ugly and the odds remained long. Such tenacity drove the entire White House staff. Dennis McDonough at one point distributed stickers to everyone, emblazoned with the words, Fight Cynicism. This became a useful slogan, an article of our faith. Knowing we had to try something big to reset the health care debate, Axe suggested I deliver a primetime address before a joint session of Congress. It was a high-stakes gambit, he explained, used only twice in the past 16 years, but it would give me a chance to speak directly to millions of viewers. I asked what the other two joint addresses had been about. The most recent was when Bush announced the war on terror after 9-11. And the other? Bill Clinton talking about his health care bill. I laughed. <laughs> well, that worked out great, didn't it? Despite the inauspicious precedent, we decided it was worth a shot. Two days after Labor Day, Michelle and I climbed into the back seat of the beast, drove up to the Capitol's east entrance, and retraced the steps we'd taken seven months earlier to the doors of the House chamber. The announcement by the sergeant-at-arms, the lights, television cameras, applause, handshakes at the center aisle, on the surface, at least, everything appeared as it had in February. But the mood in the chamber felt different this time. The smiles a little forced. A murmur of tension and doubt in the air. Maybe it was just my mood was different. Whatever giddiness or sense of personal triumph I'd felt shortly after taking office had now been burned away, replaced by something sturdier. A determination to see a job through. For an hour that evening, I explained as straightforwardly as I could what our reform proposals would mean for the families who are watching, how it would provide affordable insurance to those who needed it, but also give critical protections to those who already had insurance, how it would prevent insurance companies from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions, and eliminate the kind of lifetime limits that burden families like Laura Klitschka's. I detailed how the plan would help seniors pay for life-saving drugs, and require insurers to cover routine checkups and preventive care at no extra charge. I explained that the talk about a government takeover and death panels was nonsense, that the legislation wouldn't add a dime to the deficit, and that the time to make this happen was now. A few days earlier, I'd received a letter from Ted Kennedy. He had written it back in May, but had instructed Vicky to wait until after his death to pass it along. It was a farewell letter, two pages long, in which he thanked me for taking up the cause of health care reform, referring to it 
as that great unfinished business of our society and the cause of his life. He added that he would die with some comfort, believing that what he'd spent years working toward would now, under my watch, finally happen. So I ended my speech that night by quoting from Teddy's letter, hoping that his words would bolster the nation just as they had bolstered me. What we face, he'd written, is above all a moral issue. At stake are not just the details of policy, but fundamental principles of social justice and the character of our country. According to the poll data, my address to Congress boosted public support for the health care bill, at least temporarily. Even more important for our purposes, it seemed to stiffen the spine of wavering congressional Democrats. It did not, however, change the mind of a single Republican in the chamber. This was clear less than 30 minutes into the speech, when, as I debunked the phony claim that the bill would ensure undocumented immigrants, a relatively obscure five-term Republican congressman from South Carolina named Joe Wilson leaned forward in his seat, pointed in my direction, and shouted, his face flushed with fury, You lie! For the briefest second, a stunned silence fell over the chamber. I turned to look for the heckler, as did Speaker Pelosi and Joe Biden, Nancy aghast and Joe shaking his head. I was tempted to exit my perch, make my way down the aisle, and smack the guy in the head. Instead, I simply responded by saying, it's not true, and then carried on with my speech as Democrats hurled booze in Wilson's direction. As far as anyone could remember, nothing like that had ever happened before at a joint session address, at least not in modern times. Congressional criticism was swift and bipartisan, and by the next morning, Wilson had apologized publicly for the breach of decorum, calling Rahm and asking that his regrets get passed on to me as well. I downplayed the matter, telling a reporter that I appreciated the apology and was a big believer that we all make mistakes. And yet I couldn't help noticing the news reports, saying that online contributions to Wilson's re-election campaign spiked sharply in the week following his outburst. Apparently, for a lot of Republican voters out there, he was a hero, speaking truth to power. It was an indication that the Tea Party and its media allies had accomplished more than just their goal of demonizing the health care bill. They had demonized me, and in doing so, had delivered a message to all Republican officeholders. When it came to opposing my administration, the old rules no longer applied. Despite having grown up in Hawaii, I have never learned to sail a boat. It wasn't a pastime my family could afford. And yet, for the next three and a half months, I felt the way I imagine sailors feel on the open seas after a brutal storm has passed. The work remained arduous and sometimes monotonous, made tougher by the need to patch leaks and bale water. Maintaining speed and course in the constantly shifting winds and currents required patience, skill, and attention. But for a span of time, we had in us the thankfulness of survivors, propelled in our daily tasks by a renewed belief that we might make it to port after all. For starters, after months of delay, Baucus finally opened debate on a health care bill in the Senate Finance Committee. His version, which tracked the Massachusetts model we'd all been using, was stingier with its subsidies to the uninsured than we would have preferred, and we insisted that he replace a tax on all employer-based insurance plans with increased taxes on the wealthy. But to everyone's credit, the deliberations were generally substantive and free of grandstanding. After three weeks of exhaustive work, 
the bill passed out of committee by a 14-9 margin. Olympia Snow even decided to vote yes, giving us a lone Republican vote. Speaker Pelosi then engineered the quick passage of a consolidated House bill over uniform and boisterous GOP opposition, with a vote held on November 7, 2009. The bill had actually been ready for some time, but Nancy had been unwilling to bring it to the House floor and force her members to cast tough political votes until she had confidence that the Senate effort wasn't going to fizzle. If we could get the full Senate to pass a similarly consolidated version of its bill before the Christmas recess, we figured, we could then use January to negotiate the differences between the Senate and House versions, send a merged bill to both chambers for approval, and with any luck have the final legislation on my desk for signature by February. It was a big if, and one largely dependent on my old friend Harry Reid. True to his generally dim view of human nature, the Senate Majority Leader assumed that Olympia Snow couldn't be counted on once a final version of the health care bill hit the floor. When McConnell really puts the screws on her, he told me matter-of-factly, she'll fold like a cheap suit. To overcome the possibility of a filibuster, Harry couldn't afford to lose a single member of the 60-person caucus. And as had been true with the Recovery Act, this fact gave each one of those members enormous leverage to demand changes to the bill, regardless of how parochial or ill-considered their requests might be. This wouldn't be a situation conducive to high-minded policy considerations which was just fine with Harry, who could maneuver, cut deals, and apply pressure like nobody else. For the next six weeks, as the consolidated bill was introduced on the Senate floor and lengthy debates commenced on procedural matters, the only action that really mattered took place behind closed doors in Harry's office, where he met with the holdouts one by one to find out what it would take to get them to yes. Some wanted funding for well-intentioned but marginally useful pet projects. Several of the Senate's most liberal members, who liked to rail against the outsized profits of big pharma and private insurers, suddenly had no problem at all with the outsized profits of medical device manufacturers with facilities in their home states and were pushing Harry to scale back a proposed tax on the industry. Senators Mary Landrew and Ben Nelson made their votes contingent on billions of additional Medicaid dollars specifically for Louisiana and Nebraska, concessions that the Republicans cleverly labeled the Louisiana Purchase and the Cornhusker kickback. Whatever it took, Harry was game. Sometimes, too game. He was good about staying in touch with my team, giving Phil or Nancy Ann the chance to head off legislative changes that could adversely affect the core parts of our reforms. But occasionally he'd dig in his heels on some deal he wanted to cut, and I'd have to intervene with a call. Listening to my objections, he'd usually relent, but not without some grumbling, wondering how on earth he would get the bill passed if he did things my way. Mr. President, you know a lot more than I do about health care policy, he said at one point. But I know the Senate, okay? Compared to the egregious pork-barreling, log-rolling, and patronage-dispensing tactics Senate leaders had traditionally used to get big, controversial bills like the Civil Rights Act or Ronald Reagan's 1986 Tax Reform Act or a package like the New Deal passed, Harry's methods were fairly benign. But those bills had passed during a time when most Washington horse trading stayed out of the papers, before the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. For us, the slog through the Senate was a PR nightmare. Each time Harry's bill was altered to mollify another senator, reporters cranked out a new round of stories about, quote, backroom deals. Whatever bump in public opinion my joint address had provided to the reform effort soon vanished. And things got markedly worse 
when Harry decided, with my blessing, to strip the bill of something called the public option. From the very start of the healthcare debate, policy wonks on the left had pushed us to modify the Massachusetts model by giving consumers the choice to buy coverage on the online exchange, not just from the likes of Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield, but also from a newly formed insurer owned and operated by the government. Unsurprisingly, insurance companies had balked at the idea of a public option, arguing that they would not be able to compete against a government insurance plan that could operate without the pressures of making a profit. Of course, for public option proponents, that was exactly the point. By highlighting the cost-effectiveness of government insurance and exposing the bloated waste and immorality of the private insurance market, they hoped the public option would pave the way for a single-payer system. It was a clever idea, and one with enough traction that Nancy Pelosi had included it in the House bill. But on the Senate side, we were nowhere close to having 60 votes for a public option. There was a watered-down version in the Senate Health and Education Committee bill requiring any government-run insurer to charge the same rates as private insurers. But of course, that would have defeated the whole purpose of a public option. My team and I thought a possible compromise might involve offering a public option only in those parts of the country where there are too few insurers to provide real competition and a public entity could help drive down premium prices overall. But even that was too much for the more conservative members of the Democratic caucus to swallow, including Joe Lieberman of Connecticut, who announced shortly before Thanksgiving that under no circumstances would he vote for a package that contained a public option. When word got out that the public option had been removed from the Senate bill, activists on the left went ballistic. Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor and one-time presidential candidate, declared it, quote, essentially the collapse of health reform in the United States Senate. They were especially outraged that Harry and I appeared to be catering to the whims of Joe Lieberman, an object of liberal scorn who'd been defeated in the 2006 Democratic primary for his consistently hawkish support for the Iraq War and had then been forced to run for re-election as an independent. It wasn't the first time I'd chosen practicality over peak when it came to Lieberman. Despite the fact he'd endorsed his buddy John McCain in the last presidential campaign, Harry and I had quashed calls to strip him of various committee assignments, figuring we couldn't afford to have him bolt the caucus and cost us a reliable vote. We'd been right about that. Lieberman had consistently supported my domestic agenda. But his apparent power to dictate the terms of health care reform reinforced the view among some Democrats that I treated enemies better than allies and was turning my back on the progressives who'd put me in office. I found the whole brouhaha exasperating. What is it about 60 votes these folks don't understand, I grasped to my staff. Should I tell the 30 million people who can't get covered that they're going to have to wait another 10 years because we can't get them a public option? It wasn't just that criticism from friends always stung the most. The carping carried immediate political consequences for Democrats. It confused our base, which, generally speaking, had no idea what the hell a public option was, and divided our caucus, making it tougher for us to line up the votes we needed to get the health care bill across the finish line. It also ignored the fact that all the great social welfare advances in American history, including Social Security and Medicare, had started off incomplete and had been built upon gradually over time by preemptively spinning what could be a monumental, if imperfect, victory into a bitter defeat, the criticism contributed to a potential long-term demoralization of Democratic voters, otherwise known as the what's-the-point-of-voting-if-nothing-ever-changes syndrome, 
making it even harder for us to win elections and move progressive legislation forward in the future. There was a reason, I told Valerie, why Republicans tended to do the opposite, why Ronald Reagan could preside over huge increases in the federal budget, federal deficit, and federal workforce, and still be lionized by the GOP faithful as the guy who successfully shrank the federal government. They understood that in politics, the stories told were often as important as the substance achieved. We made none of these arguments publicly, though for the rest of my presidency, the phrase public option became a useful shorthand inside the White House any time Democratic interest groups complained about us failing to defy political gravity and securing less than 100% of whatever they were asking for. Instead, we did our best to calm folks down, reminding disgruntled supporters that we'd have plenty of time to fine-tune the legislation once we merged the House and Senate bills. Harry kept doing Harry stuff, including keeping the Senate in session weeks past the scheduled adjournment for the holidays. As he'd predicted, Olympia Snow braved a blizzard to stop by the Oval and tell us in person that she'd be voting no. She claimed it was because Harry was rushing the bill through. The word was that McConnell had threatened to strip her of her ranking post on the Small Business Committee if she voted for it. But none of this mattered. On Christmas Eve, after 24 days of debate, with Washington blanketed in snow and the streets all but empty. The Senate passed its health care bill, titled the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the ACA, with exactly 60 votes. It was the first Christmas Eve vote in the Senate since 1895. A few hours later, I settled back in my seat on Air Force One, listening to Michelle and the girls discuss how well Bo was adjusting to his first plane ride as we headed to Hawaii for the holiday break. I felt myself starting to relax just a little. We were going to make it, I thought to myself. We weren't docked yet, but thanks to my team, thanks to Nancy, Harry, and a whole bunch of congressional Democrats who'd taken tough votes, we finally had land within our sights. Little did I know that our ship was about to crash into rocks. Our magic, filibuster-proof hold on the Senate existed for only one reason. After Ted Kennedy died in August, the Massachusetts legislature had changed state law to allow the governor, Democrat Deval Patrick, to appoint a replacement rather than leaving the seat vacant until a special election could be held. But that was just a stopgap measure. And now, with the election scheduled for January 19th, we needed a Democrat to win the seat. Fortunately for us, Massachusetts happened to be one of the most Democratic states in the nation, with no Republican senator elected in the previous 37 years. The Democratic nominee for the Senate, Attorney General Martha Coakley, had maintained a steady double-digit lead over her Republican opponent, a little-known state senator named Scott Brown. With the race seemingly well in hand, my team and I spent the first two weeks of January preoccupied by the challenge of brokering a health care bill acceptable to both House and Senate Democrats. It was not pleasant. Disdain between the two chambers of Congress is a time-honored tradition in Washington one that even transcends party. Senators generally consider House members to be impulsive, parochial, and ill-informed, while House members tend to view senators as long-winded, pompous, and ineffectual. By the start of 2010, that disdain had curdled into outright hostility. House Democrats, tired of seeing their huge majority squandered and their aggressively liberal agenda stymied by a Senate Democratic caucus held captive by its more conservative members, insisted that the Senate version of the health care bill had no chance in the House. Senate Democrats, fed up with what they considered House grandstanding at their expense, were no less recalcitrant. 
Rahm and Nancy Ann's efforts to broker a deal appeared to be going nowhere, with arguments erupting over even the most obscure provisions, members cursing at one another and threatening to walk out. After a week of this, I'd had enough. I called Pelosi, Reed, and negotiators from both sides down to the White House, and for three straight days in mid-January, we sat around the cabinet room table, methodically going through every dispute, sorting out areas where House members had to take Senate constraints into account and where the Senate had to give, with me reminding everyone all the while that failure was not an option and that we'd do this every night for the next month if that's what it took to reach an agreement. Though progress was slow, I felt pretty good about our prospects. That is, until the afternoon I stopped by Axelrod's small office and found him and Messina leaning over a computer like a pair of doctors examining the x-rays of a terminal patient. What's the matter, I asked. We've got problems in Massachusetts, Ax said, shaking his head. How bad? Bad, Ax and Messina said in unison. They explained that our Senate candidate, Martha Coakley, had taken the race for granted, spending her time schmoozing elected officials, donors, and labor bigwigs rather than talking to voters. To make matters worse, she'd taken a vacation just three weeks before the election, a move the press had roundly panned. Meanwhile, Republican Scott Brown's campaign had caught fire, with his everyman demeanor and good looks, not to mention the pickup truck he drove to every corner of the state, Brown had effectively tapped into the fears and frustrations of working-class voters who were getting clobbered by the recession, and, because they lived in a state that already provided health insurance to all its residents, saw my obsession with passing a federal health care law as a big waste of time. Apparently, neither the tightening poll numbers nor nervous calls from my team and Harry had shaken Coakley out of her torpor. The previous day, when asked by a reporter about her light campaign schedule, she'd brushed the question off, saying, as opposed to standing outside Fenway, in the cold, shaking hands, a sarcastic reference to Scott Brown's New Year's Day campaign stop at Boston's storied ballpark, where the city's hockey team, the Boston Bruins, were hosting the annual NHL Winter Classic against the Philadelphia Flyers. In a town that worshipped its sports teams, it would be hard to come up with a line more likely to turn off large segments of the electorate. She didn't say that, I said dumbfounded. Messina nodded toward his computer. It's right here, on the Globe website. No, I moaned, grabbing Axe by the lapels and shaking him theatrically, then stomping my feet like a toddler in the throes of a tantrum. No, no, no! My shoulders slumped as my mind ran through the implications. She's going to lose, isn't she? I said finally. Axon Messina didn't have to answer. The weekend before the election, I tried to salvage the situation by flying to Boston to attend a Coakley rally. But it was too late. Brown won comfortably. Headlines around the country spoke of a stunning upset and historic defeat. The verdict in Washington was swift and unforgiving. Obama's health care bill was dead. Even now, it's hard for me to have a clear perspective on the Massachusetts loss. Maybe the conventional wisdom is right. Maybe if I hadn't pushed so hard on health care during that first year, if instead I'd focused all my public events and pronouncements on jobs and the financial crisis, we might have saved that Senate seat. Certainly, if we'd had fewer items on our plate, my team and I might have noticed the warning signs earlier and coached Coakley better, and I might have done more campaigning in Massachusetts. It's equally possible, though, that given the grim state of the economy, there was nothing we could have done.
that the wheels of history would have remained impervious to our puny interventions. I know at the time all of us felt we'd committed a colossal blunder. Commentators shared in that assessment. Op-ed pieces called for me to replace my team, starting with Rom and Axe. I didn't pay much attention. I figured any mistakes were mine to own, and I took pride in having built a culture, both during the campaign and inside the White House, where we didn't go looking for scapegoats when things went south. But it was harder for Rom to ignore the chatter. Having spent most of his career in Washington, the daily news cycle was how he kept score, not just on the administration's performance, but on his own place in the world. He constantly courted the city's opinion makers, aware of how quickly winners became losers and how mercilessly White House staffers were picked apart in the wake of any failure. In this case, he saw himself as unfairly maligned. It was he, after all, who more than anyone had warned me about the political peril in pressing ahead with the health care bill. And as we're all prone to do when hurt or aggrieved, he couldn't help venting to friends around town. Unfortunately, that circle of friends turned out to be too wide. About a month after the Massachusetts election, Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank wrote a piece in which he mounted a vigorous defense of Rom, arguing that, quote, Obama's greatest mistake was failing to listen to a manual on health care and outlining why a scaled-back health care package would have been the smarter strategy. Having your chief of staff appear to distance himself from you after you've been knocked down in a fight is less than ideal. Though I wasn't happy with the column, I didn't think Rom had deliberately prompted it. I chalked it up to carelessness under stress. Not everyone, though, was so quick to forgive. Valerie, ever protective of me, was furious. Reactions among other senior staffers, already shaken by the Coakley loss, ranged from anger to disappointment. That afternoon, Rom entered the Oval appropriately contrite. He hadn't meant to do it, he said, but he'd let me down and was prepared to tender his resignation. You're not resigning, I said. I acknowledged that he'd messed up and would need to square things with the rest of the team. But I also told him he'd been a great chief of staff, that I was confident that the error would not be repeated, and that I needed him right where he was. Mr. President, I'm not sure. I cut him off. You know what your real punishment is? I said, clapping him on the back as I ushered him toward the door. What's that? You have to go pass the goddamn health care bill. That I still considered this possible wasn't as crazy as it seemed. Our original plan, to negotiate a compromise bill between House and Senate Democrats and then pass that legislation through both chambers, was now out of the question. With only 59 votes, we'd never avoid a filibuster. But as Phil had reminded me the night we'd received the Massachusetts results, we had one remaining path, and it didn't involve going back to the Senate. If the House could just pass the Senate bill without changes, they could send it straight to my desk for signature and it would become law. Phil believed that it might be possible to then invoke a Senate procedure called budget reconciliation, in which legislation that involves strictly financial matters could be put up for a vote with the agreement of a simple majority of senators rather than the usual 60. This would allow us to engineer a limited number of improvements to the Senate bill via separate legislation. Still, there was no getting around the fact that we'd be asking House Democrats to swallow a version of health care reform they previously rejected out of hand one with no public option, a Cadillac tax the unions opposed, and a cumbersome patchwork of 50 state exchanges instead of a single national marketplace through which people could buy their insurance. You still feeling lucky? Phil asked me with a grin. Actually, I wasn't. 
but I was feeling confident in the Speaker of the House. The previous year had only reinforced my appreciation for Nancy Pelosi's legislative skills. She was tough, pragmatic, and a master at hurting members of her contentious caucus, often publicly defending some of her fellow House Democrats' politically untenable positions while softening them up behind the scenes for the inevitable compromises required to get things done. I called Nancy the next day, explaining that my team had drafted a drastically scaled-back health care proposal as a fallback, but that I wanted to push ahead with passing the Senate bill through the House and needed her support to do it. For the next 15 minutes, I was subjected to one of Nancy's patented stream-of-consciousness rants on why the Senate bill was flawed, why her caucus members were so angry, and why the Senate Democrats were cowardly, short-sighted, and generally incompetent. So, does that mean you're with me? I said when she finally paused to catch her breath. Well, that's not even a question, Mr. President, Nancy said impatiently. We've come too far to give up now. She thought for a moment. Then, as if testing out an argument she'd later use with her caucus, she added, If we let this go, it would be rewarding the Republicans for acting so terribly, wouldn't it? We're not going to give them the satisfaction. After I hung up the phone, I looked up at Phil and Nancy Ann, who'd been milling about the Resolute desk, listening to my mostly wordless side of the conversation, trying to read my face for a sign of what was happening. I love that woman, I said. Even with the Speaker fully on board, the task of rounding up the necessary votes in the House was daunting. Aside from having to drag progressives kicking and screaming to support a bill tailored to the sensibilities of Max Baucus and Joe Lieberman, the election of Scott Brown, less than a year before the midterms, had spooked every moderate Democrat who would be in a competitive race. We needed something to help shift the doom-and-gloom narrative and give Nancy time to work her members. As it turned out, our opposition gave us exactly what we needed. Months earlier, the House Republican Caucus had invited me to participate in a question-and-answer session at their annual retreat, scheduled for January 29th. Anticipating that the topic of health care might come up, we suggested at the last minute that they open the event to the press. Whether because he didn't want the hassle of dealing with pushback from excluded reporters, or because he was feeling emboldened by the Scott Brown victory, John Boehner agreed. He shouldn't have. In a nondescript Baltimore hotel conference room, with caucus chair Mike Pence presiding and the cable networks capturing every exchange, I stood on the stage for an hour and 22 minutes fielding questions from Republican House members, mostly about health care. For anyone watching, the session confirmed what those of us who'd been working on the issue already knew. The overwhelming majority of them had little idea of what was actually in the bill they so vehemently opposed weren't entirely sure about the details of their proposed alternatives, to the extent that they had any, and weren't equipped to discuss the topic outside the hermetically sealed bubble of conservative media outlets. Returning to the White House, I suggested that we press our advantage by inviting the four tops and a bipartisan group of key congressional leaders to come to Blair House for an all-day meeting on health care. Once again, we arranged to have the proceedings broadcast live, this time through C-SPAN and again the format allowed Republicans to make whatever points or ask whatever questions they wanted. Having been caught off guard once, they came prepared with a script this time. House GOP whip Eric Cantor brought a copy of the House bill, all 2,700 pages of it, and plopped it on the table in front of them as a symbol of an out-of-control government takeover of health care. Boehner insisted that our proposal was, quote, a dangerous experiment, and that we should start over. 
John McCain launched into a lengthy harangue about backroom deals, prompting me at one point to remind him that the campaign was over. But when it came to actual policy, when I asked GOP leaders what exactly they proposed to help drive down medical costs, protect people with pre-existing conditions, and cover 30 million Americans who couldn't otherwise get insurance, their answers were as threadbare as Chuck Grassley's had been during his visit to the Oval months before. I'm sure that more people watched bowling that week than caught even five minutes of these conversations on TV, and it was clear throughout both sessions that nothing I said was going to have the slightest impact on Republican behavior, other than motivating them to bar TV cameras from my future appearances before their caucuses. What mattered was how the two events served to reinvigorate House Democrats, reminding them that we were on the right side of the health care issue, and that rather than focusing on the Senate bill's shortcomings, they could take heart in how the bill promised to help millions of people. By the beginning of March, we had confirmed that Senate rules would allow us to clean up parts of the Senate bill through reconciliation. We enhanced the subsidies to help more people. We trimmed the Cadillac tax to placate the unions and got rid of the twin embarrassments of the Cornhusker kickback and the Louisiana Purchase. Valerie's public engagement team did great work lining up endorsements from groups like the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, and the American Heart Association, while a grassroots network of advocacy groups and volunteers worked overtime to educate the public and keep the pressure on Congress. Anthem, one of America's largest insurers, announced a 39% rate hike, conveniently reminding people of what they didn't like about the current system. And when the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops announced that it couldn't support the bill, convinced that the bill's language prohibiting the use of federal subsidies for abortion services wasn't explicit enough, an unlikely ally arrived in the form of Sister Carol Keehan, a soft-spoken, perpetually cheerful nun who headed up the nation's Catholic hospitals. Not only did the 66-year-old Daughter of Charity break with the bishops by insisting that the passage of the bill was vital to fulfilling her organization's mission, of caring for the sick, she inspired the leaders of Catholic women's orders and organizations representing more than 50,000 American nuns to sign a public letter endorsing the bill. I love nuns, I told Phil and Nancy Ann. Despite all this work, our tallies still showed us at least 10 votes shy of what we needed for passage. Public opinion remained sharply divided. The press had run out of fresh stories to write. There were no more dramatic gestures or policy tweaks that might make the politics easier. Success or failure now depended entirely on the choices of the 30 or so House Democrats who represented swing districts, all of whom were being told that a vote in favor of the ACA could cost them their seat. I spent much of each day talking one-on-one -on -one to these members, sometimes in the Oval Office, more often by phone. Some cared only about the politics closely monitoring polls in their district and letters and phone calls from constituents. I tried to give them my honest assessment that support for the health care reform bill would improve once it passed, though maybe not until after the midterms, that a no vote was more likely to turn off Democrats than it was to win over Republicans and independents, and that whatever they did, their fates in six months would most likely hinge on the state of the economy and my own political standing. A few were looking for White House support on some unrelated project or bill they were working on. I sent them to Rom or Pete Rouse to see what we could do. But most of the conversations weren't transactional. In a roundabout way, what representatives were looking for was clarity about who they were 
and what their consciences demanded. Sometimes I just listened as they ran through the pros and cons. Often we compared notes about what had inspired us to get into politics, talking about the nervous excitement of that first race and all the things we'd hoped to accomplish, the sacrifices we and our families had made to get to where we were, and the people who'd helped us along the way. This is it, I said to them finally. The point of it all, to have that rare chance, reserved for very few, to bend history in a better direction. And what was striking was how, more often than not, that was enough. Veteran politicians decided to step up despite active opposition in their conservative districts. Folks like Baron Hill of Southern Indiana, Earl Pomeroy of North Dakota, and Bart Stupak, a devout Catholic from Michigan's Upper Peninsula, who worked with me on getting the abortion funding language to a point where he could vote for it. So did political neophytes, like Betsy Markey of Colorado, or John Bocheri of Ohio and Patrick Murphy of Pennsylvania, both young Iraq war vets, all of them seen as rising stars in the party. In fact, it was often those with the most to lose who needed the least convincing. Tom Perriello, a 35-year-old human rights lawyer turned congressman, who'd eked out a victory in a majority Republican district that covered a wide swath of Virginia, spoke for a lot of them when he explained his decision to vote for the bill. There are things more important, he told me, than getting reelected. It's not hard to find people who hate Congress. Voters were convinced that the Capitol is filled with posers and cowards, that most of their elected officials are in the pocket of lobbyists and big donors and motivated by a hunger for power. When I hear such criticism, I usually nod and acknowledge that there are some who live up to these stereotypes. I admit that watching the daily scrum that takes place on the House or Senate floor can sap even the hardiest spirit. But I also tell people about Tom Perriello's words to me before the health care vote. I describe what he and many others did so soon after they'd first been elected. How many of us are tested in that way, as to risk careers we've long dreamed of in the service of some greater good? Those people can be found in Washington. That, too, is politics. The final vote on health care came on March 21, 2010, more than a year after we held that first White House summit and Ted Kennedy made his surprise appearance. Everyone in the West Wing was on edge. Both Phil and the Speaker had done informal headcounts that showed us getting over the hump, but just barely. We knew it was always possible that a House member or two could have a sudden change of heart, and we had few, if any, votes to spare. I had another source of worry, one I hadn't allowed myself to dwell on, but that had been in the back of my mind from the start. We'd now marshaled, defended, fretted over, and compromised on a 906-page piece of legislation that would affect the lives of tens of millions of Americans. The Affordable Care Act was dense, thorough, popular with only one side politically, impactful, and surely imperfect. And now it would need to be implemented. Late in the afternoon, after Nancy Ann and I had worked through a round of last-minute calls to members heading off to vote, I stood up and looked out the window across the South Lawn. This law better work, I told her, because starting tomorrow... We own the American healthcare system. I decided not to watch the preliminary hours of speech making that went on in the House chamber, instead, waiting to join the Vice President and the rest of the team in the Roosevelt Room once the actual voting began, around 7 30 p.m. One by one, the votes accumulated as House members pressed either yay or nay buttons on electronic voting panels. 
the running tally projected on the TV screen. As the yays slowly ticked up, I could hear Messina and a few others muttering under their breaths. Come on, come on. Finally, the vote hit 216. One more vote than we needed. Our bill would go on to pass by a margin of seven votes. The room erupted in cheers, with people hugging and high-fiving as if they just witnessed their ball club winning with a walk-off home run. Joe grabbed me by the shoulders, his famous grin even wider than usual. You did it, man, he said. Rom and I embraced. He'd brought his 13-year-old son, Zach, to the White House that evening to watch the vote. I leaned down and told Zach that because of his dad, millions of people would finally have health care if they got sick. The kid beamed. Back in the Oval, I made congratulatory calls to Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. And when I was done, I found Axelrod standing by the door. His eyes were a little red. He told me he'd needed some time alone in his office following the vote, as it had brought back a flood of memories of what he and his wife, Susan, had gone through when their daughter Lauren had been first stricken with epileptic seizures. Thanks for sticking with this, Axe said, his voice choked up. I put my arm around him, feeling my own emotions swell. This is why we do the work, I said. This, right here. I'd invited everyone who worked on the bill up to the residence for a private celebration, about a hundred people in all. It was Sasha and Malia's spring break, and Michelle had taken them to New York for a few days, so I was on my own. The evening was warm enough that we could mingle outside on the Truman Balcony, with the Washington Monument and Jefferson Memorial lit up in the distance. And I made an exception to my rule of weekday sobriety. Martini in hand, I made the rounds, hugging and thanking Phil, Nancy Ann, Jean, and Kathleen for all the work they'd done. I shook hands with scores of junior staffers, many of whom I'd never met, and who no doubt felt a little overwhelmed to be standing where they were. I knew that they had toiled in the background, crunching numbers, preparing drafts, sending out press releases, and answering congressional inquiries, and I wanted them to know how critical their work had been. For me, this was a celebration that mattered. The night we'd had in Grant Park after winning the election had been extraordinary, but it had been just a promise, not yet realized. This night meant more to me, a promise fulfilled. After everyone had left, well past midnight, I walked down the hallway to the treaty room. Bo was curled up on the floor. He'd passed much of the evening on the balcony with my guests, threading through the crowd, looking for a pat on the head or maybe a dropped canopy to snack on. Now he looked pleasantly fatigued ready to sleep. I leaned down to give him a scratch behind the ears. I thought about Ted Kennedy, and I thought about my mom. It was a good day. Part 5. The World as it is. Chapter 18. Just as delivering a salute became second nature to me, Repeated any time I boarded Marine One or Air Force One or interacted with our troops, I slowly grew more comfortable and efficient in my role as Commander-in-Chief. The morning PDB became more concise as my team and I got better acquainted with a recurring cast of foreign policy characters, scenarios, conflicts, and threats. Connections that had once been opaque were now obvious to me. I could tell you off the top of my head which Allied troops were where in Afghanistan and how reliable they were in a fight which Iraqi ministers were ardent nationalists, and which carried water for the Iranians. The stakes were too high, the problems too knotty, for any of this to ever feel entirely routine. 
Instead, I came to experience my responsibilities the way I imagine a bomb disposal expert feels about clipping a wire, or a tightrope walker feels as she steps off the platform, having learned to shed excess fear for the sake of focus, while trying not to get so relaxed that I made sloppy mistakes. There was one task I never allowed myself to get even remotely comfortable with. Every week or so, my assistant, Katie Johnson, sat on my desk, a folder containing condolence letters to the families of fallen service members for me to sign. I'd close the door to my office, open the folder, and pause over each letter, reading the name aloud like an incantation, trying to summon an image of the young man. Female casualties were rare. And what his life had been like, where he'd grown up and gone to school, the birthday parties and summer swims that had made up his childhood, the sports teams he'd played on, the sweethearts he'd pined for. I'd think about his parents, and his wife and kids if he had them. I signed each letter slowly, careful not to smudge the heavy beige paper with my left-handed, sideways grip of the pen. If the signature didn't look the way I wanted, I'd have the letter reprinted, knowing full well that nothing I did would ever be enough. I wasn't the only person to send such letters. Bob Gates also corresponded with the families of those killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, though we rarely, if ever, talked about it. Gates and I had developed a strong working relationship. We met regularly in the Oval Office, and I found him to be practical, even-keeled, and refreshingly blunt, with a quiet confidence to both argue his case and occasionally change his mind. His skillful management of the Pentagon made me willing to overlook those times he tried to manage me as well. And he wasn't afraid to take on Defense Department's sacred cows, including efforts to rein in the defense budget. He could be prickly, especially with my younger White House staffers. And our differences in age, upbringing, experience, and political orientation made us something short of friends. But we recognized in each other a common work ethic and sense of duty, not only to the nation that had trusted us to keep it safe, but to the troops whose courage we witnessed every day and to the families they had left behind. It helped that on most national security issues, our judgments aligned. Entering the summer of 2009, for example, Gates and I shared a guarded optimism about developments in Iraq. Not that the conditions there were rosy. The Iraqi economy was in shambles. The war had destroyed much of the country's basic infrastructure, while plunging world oil prices had sapped the national budget. And due to parliamentary gridlock, Iraq's government had difficulty carrying out even the most basic tasks. During my brief visit there in April... I'd offered Prime Minister Maliki suggestions for how he might embrace needed administrative reforms and more effectively reach out to Iraq's Sunni and Kurdish factions. He'd been polite but defensive. Apparently, he wasn't a student of Madison's Federalist No. 10. As far as he was concerned, Shiites in Iraq were the majority, his party's coalition had won the most votes, Sunnis and Kurds were hindering progress with their unreasonable demands, and any notions of accommodating the interests or protecting the rights of Iraq's minority populations were an inconvenience he assumed only as a result of U.S. pressure. The conversation had been a useful reminder to me that elections alone don't produce a functioning democracy. Until Iraq found a way to strengthen its civic institutions and its leaders developed habits of compromise, the country would continue to struggle. Still, the fact that Maliki and his rivals were expressing hostility and mistrust through politics, rather than through the barrel of a gun, counted as progress. Even with U.S. forces withdrawing from Iraqi population centers, AQI-sponsored terrorist attacks had continued to decline 
and our commanders reported a steady improvement in the performance of Iraqi security forces. Gates and I agreed that the United States would need to play a critical role in Iraq for years to come, advising key ministries, training its security forces, breaking deadlocks between factions, and helping finance the country's reconstruction. But barring significant reversals, the end of America's war in Iraq was finally in sight. The same couldn't be said about Afghanistan. The additional troops I'd authorized in February had helped check Taliban gains in some areas and were working to secure the upcoming presidential election. But our forces had not reversed the country's deepening cycle of violence and instability. And as a result of increased fighting over a wider swath of territory, U.S. casualties had spiked. Afghan casualties were also on the rise, with more civilians caught in the crossfire, falling prey to suicide attacks and sophisticated roadside bombs planted by insurgents. Afghans increasingly complained about certain U.S. tactics. Nighttime raids on homes suspected of harboring Taliban fighters, for example, that they viewed as dangerous or disruptive, but that our commanders deemed necessary to carry out their missions. On the political front, President Karzai's re-election strategy mainly consisted of buying off local power brokers, intimidating opponents, and shrewdly playing various ethnic factions against one another. Diplomatically, our high-level outreach to Pakistani officials appeared to have had no effect on their continued tolerance of Taliban safe havens inside their country. And all the while, a reconstituted al-Qaeda operating in the border areas with Pakistan still posed a major threat. Given the lack of meaningful progress, we were all eager to see what our new ISAF commander, General Stanley McChrystal, had to say about the situation. At the end of August, having spent weeks in Afghanistan with a team of military and civilian advisors, McChrystal turned in the top-to-bottom assessment that Gates had asked for. A few days later, the Pentagon sent it to the White House. Rather than provide clear answers, it set off a whole new round of troublesome questions. Most of McChrystal's assessment detailed what we already knew. The situation in Afghanistan was bad and getting worse. With the Taliban emboldened, the Afghan army weak and demoralized, and Karzai, who prevailed in an election tainted by violence and fraud, still in charge of a government that was viewed by the Afghan people as corrupt and inept. What got everyone's attention, though, was the report's conclusion. To turn the situation around, McChrystal proposed a full-blown counterinsurgency, or COIN, campaign, a military strategy meant to contain and marginalize insurgents not just by fighting them, but by simultaneously working to increase stability for the country's wider population ideally quelling some of the fury that had driven insurgents to take up arms in the first place. Not only was McChrystal proposing a more ambitious approach than what I'd envisioned when I'd adopted the Rydell Report recommendations in the spring, he was also requesting at least 40,000 troops on top of those I'd already deployed, which would bring the total number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan close to 100,000 for the foreseeable future. So much for being the anti-war president, Axe said. It was tough not to feel as if I'd been subjected to a bait-and-switch, that the Pentagon's acquiescence to my more modest initial increase of 17,000 troops and 4,000 military trainers had been merely a temporary tactical retreat on the path to getting more. Among members of my team, divisions over Afghanistan that had been evident back in February began to harden. Mike Mullen, the Joint Chiefs, and David Petraeus all endorsed McChrystal's coin strategy in its entirety. Anything less, they argued, was likely to fail and would signal a dangerous lack of American resolve to friends and foes alike. 
Hillary and Panetta quickly followed suit. Gates, who'd previously expressed concern over the wisdom of expanding our military footprint in a country famously resistant to foreign occupation, was more circumspect, but told me he'd been persuaded by McChrystal that a smaller U.S. force wouldn't work, and that if we coordinated closely with the Afghan security forces to protect local populations and better train our soldiers to respect Afghan culture, we could avoid the problems that had plagued the Soviets in the 1980s. Meanwhile, Joe, and a sizable number of NSC staffers, viewed McChrystal's proposal as just the latest attempt by an unrestrained military to drag the country deeper into a futile, wildly expensive nation-building exercise, when we could and should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism or CT efforts against al-Qaeda. After reading McChrystal's 66-page assessment, I shared Joe's skepticism. As far as I could tell, there was no clear exit strategy. Under McChrystal's plan, it would take five to six years just to get U.S. troop numbers back down to where they were now. The costs were staggering, at least $1 billion for every thousand additional troops deployed. Our men and women in uniform, some in their fourth or fifth tours after close to a decade of war, would face an even greater toll. And given the resilience of the Taliban and the dysfunction of Karzai's government, there was no guarantee of success. In the written endorsement of the plan, Gates and the generals acknowledged that no amount of U.S. military power could stabilize Afghanistan, quote, as long as pervasive corruption and preying upon the people continued to characterize governance inside the country. I saw no possibility of that condition being met anytime soon. Still, some hard truths prevented me from rejecting McChrystal's plan out of hand. The status quo was untenable. We couldn't afford to let the Taliban return to power and we needed more time to train more capable Afghan security forces and to root out al-Qaeda and its leadership. As confident as I felt in my own judgment, I couldn't ignore the unanimous recommendation of experienced generals who'd managed to salvage some measure of stability in Iraq and were already in the thick of the fight in Afghanistan. I therefore asked Jim Jones and Tom Donlan to organize a series of NSC meetings where, away from congressional politics and media grousing, we could methodically work through the details of McChrystal's proposal, see how they matched up with our previously articulated objectives, and settle on the best way forward. As it turned out, the generals had other ideas. Just two days after I received the report, the Washington Post published an interview with David Petraeus, in which he declared that any hope for success in Afghanistan would require substantially more troops and a, quote, fully resourced, comprehensive coin strategy. About 10 days later, fresh off our first discussion of McChrystal's proposal in the Situation Room, Mike Mullen appeared before the Senate Armed Services Committee for a previously scheduled hearing and made the same argument. Dismissing any narrower strategy as insufficient to the goal of defeating al-Qaeda and keeping Afghanistan from becoming a future base for attacks against the homeland. A few days after that, on September 21st, the Post published a synopsis of McChrystal's report that had leaked to Bob Woodward. Under the headline, McChrystal, More Forces or, quote, Mission Failure. This was followed in short order by McChrystal giving an interview to 60 Minutes and delivering a speech in London, in both instances promoting the merits of his coin strategy over other alternatives. The reaction was predictable. Republican hawks like John McCain and Lindsey Graham seized on the general's media blitz, offering the familiar refrain that I should, quote, listen to my commanders on the ground and fulfill McChrystal's request. News stories appeared daily, 
hyping the ever-growing rift between the White House and the Pentagon. Columnists accused me of, quote, dithering, and questioned whether I had the intestinal fortitude to lead a nation during wartime. Rahm remarked that in all his years in Washington, he'd never seen such an orchestrated public campaign by the Pentagon to box in a president. Biden was more succinct. It's fucking outrageous. I agreed. It was hardly the first time the disagreements inside my team had spilled into the press, but it was the first instance during my presidency when I felt as if an entire agency under my charge was working its own agenda. I decided it was also going to be the last. Shortly after Mullen's congressional testimony, I asked him and Gates to see me in the Oval Office. So, I said after we'd taken our seats and I'd offered them coffee, did I not make myself clear about how I wanted time to evaluate McChrystal's assessment? Or does your building just have a basic lack of respect for me? The two men shifted uncomfortably on the couch. As is usually the case when I'm angry, I didn't raise my voice. From the day I was sworn in, I continued, I've gone out of my way to create an environment where everyone's views are heard. And I think I've shown myself willing to make unpopular decisions when I thought it was necessary for our national security. Would you agree with that, Bob? I would, Mr. President, Gates said. So, when I set up a process that's going to decide whether I send tens of thousands more troops into a deadly war zone at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, and I see my top military leaders short-circuiting that process to argue their position in public, I have to wonder, is it because they figure they know better and don't want to be bothered answering my questions? Is it because I'm young and didn't serve in the military? Is it because they don't like my politics? I paused, letting the question linger. Mullen cleared his throat. I think I speak for all your flag officers, Mr. President, he said, when I say we have the highest respect for you and the office. I nodded. Well, Mike, I'll take your word on that. And I give you my word that I'll make my decision about Stan's proposal based on the Pentagon's advice and what I believe best serves the interests of this country. But until I do, I said, leaning in for emphasis, I'd sure like to stop having my military advisors telling me what I have to do on the front page of the morning paper. Is that fair? He agreed that it was. We moved on to other matters. Looking back, I'm inclined to believe Gates when he said there was no coordinated plan by Mullen, Petraeus, or McChrystal to force my hand, although he'd later admit to hearing from a reliable source that someone on McChrystal's staff had leaked the general's report to Woodward. I know that all three men were motivated by a sincere conviction of the rightness of their position, and that they considered it to be part of their code as military officers to provide their honest assessment in public testimony or press statements without regard to political consequences. Gates was quick to remind me that Mullen's outspokenness had aggravated President Bush as well, and he was right to point out that senior officials in the White House were often as guilty of trying to work the press behind the scenes. But I also think the episode illustrated just how accustomed the military had become to getting whatever it wanted during the Bush years, and the degree to which basic policy decisions about war and peace, but also about America's budget priorities, diplomatic goals, and possible trade-offs between security and other values had been steadily farmed out to the Pentagon and the CIA. It was easy to see the factors behind this. The impulse after 9-11 to do whatever it took to stop the terrorists and the reluctance of the White House to ask any tough questions that might get in the way. A military forced to clean up the mess that resulted from the decision to invade Iraq. A public that rightly saw the military as more competent and trustworthy than the civilians who were supposed to make policy. 
a Congress that was chiefly interested in avoiding responsibility for hard foreign policy problems, and a press corps that could be overly deferential to anyone with stars on their shoulders. Men like Mullen, Petraeus, McChrystal, and Gates, all of them proven leaders with a singular focus on the hugely difficult tasks before them, had simply filled a vacuum. America had been lucky to have those men in the positions they were in, and when it came to the later phases of the Iraq War, they'd mostly made the right calls. But as I told Petraeus that first time we met in Iraq, right before I was elected, it was the job of the president to think broadly, not narrowly, and to weigh the costs and benefits of military action against everything else that went into making the country strong. As much as any specific differences over strategy or tactics, such fundamental issues, the civilian control of policymaking, the respective roles of the president and his military advisors in our constitutional system, and the considerations each brought to bear in deciding about war, became the subtext of the Afghan debate. And it was on these issues that the differences between me and Gates became more obvious. As one of Washington's savviest operators, Gates understood as well as anybody congressional pressure, public opinion, and budgetary constraints. But for him, these were obstacles to navigate around, not legitimate factors that should inform our decisions. Throughout the Afghan debate, he was quick to ascribe any objections Rahm or Biden might raise about the difficulty in rounding up the votes in Congress for the 30 to $40 billion a year in additional spending the McChrystal's plan might require, or the weariness that the nation might feel after close to a decade of war, as mere politics. To other people, though never directly to me, Gates would sometimes question my commitment to the war and the strategy I'd adopted back in March, no doubt attributing it to politics as well. It was hard for him to see that what he dismissed as politics was democracy as it was supposed to work, that our mission had to be defined not only by the need to defeat an enemy, but by the need to make sure the country wasn't bled dry in the process. The questions about spending hundreds of billions on missiles and forward operating bases rather than schools or healthcare for kids weren't tangential to national security, but central to it. That the sense of duty he felt so keenly toward the troops already deployed, his genuine, admirable desire that they be given every chance to succeed, might be matched by the passion and patriotism of those interested in limiting the number of young Americans placed in harm's way. Maybe it wasn't Gates's job to think about those things, but it was mine. And so from mid-September till mid-November, I presided over a series of nine two- to three-hour meetings in the sit-room to evaluate McChrystal's plan. The sheer length of the deliberations became a story in Washington. And though my talk with Gates and Mullen had put a stop to on-the-record editorializing from the top generals, leaks, anonymous quotes, and speculation continued to appear regularly in the press. I did my best to block out the noise, aided by the knowledge that many of my loudest critics were the same commentators and so-called experts who had actively promoted or been swept up in the rush to invade Iraq. Indeed, one of the chief arguments for adopting McChrystal's plan was its similarities to the coin strategy Petraeus had used during the U.S. surge in Iraq. As a general matter, Petraeus's emphasis on training local forces, improving local governance, and protecting local populations, rather than seizing territory and piling up insurgent body counts, made sense. But Afghanistan in 2009 wasn't Iraq in 2006. The two countries represented different circumstances, demanding different solutions. With each sit-room session, it became clear that the expansive view of coin that McChrystal imagined for Afghanistan 
not only went beyond what was needed to destroy Al-Qaeda, it went beyond what was likely achievable within my term of office, if it was achievable at all. John Brennan reemphasized that unlike Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Taliban was too deeply woven into the fabric of Afghan society to be eradicated, and that despite their sympathies towards Al-Qaeda, they showed no signs of plotting attacks outside Afghanistan against the United States or its allies. Our ambassador in Kabul, former General Carl Eikenberry, doubted that the Karzai government could be reformed and feared that a large troop infusion and further Americanization of the war would take all pressure off Karzai to get his act together. McChrystal's lengthy timetable for both installing troops and pulling them out looked less like an Iraq-style surge than a long-term occupation, leading Biden to ask why, with al-Qaeda in Pakistan and almost entirely targeted with drone strikes, we should commit 100,000 troops to rebuilding the country next door. In front of me, at least, McChrystal and the other generals dutifully responded to each of these concerns, in some cases persuasively, in others not so much. Despite their patience and good manners, they had trouble hiding their frustration at having their professional judgment challenged, especially by those who'd never put on a uniform. McChrystal's eyes narrowed when, on more than one occasion, Biden started to explain to him what was necessary to carry out successful counterterrorism operations. Tensions between White House staffers and the Pentagon got worse, with NSC staff feeling stonewalled when it came to getting information in a timely fashion, and Gates quietly fuming over what he considered to be the NSC's constant micromanagement. The bad blood even spilled over into relationships within departments. Joint Chiefs Vice Chairman James Haas Cartwright and Lieutenant General Douglas Lute, an NSC deputy and war czar during the final two years of the Bush administration, who might ask to stay on, would both see their stock drop inside the Pentagon the minute they agreed to help Biden flesh out a less troop-intensive, more CT-oriented alternative to McChrystal's plan. Hillary, meanwhile, considered Eikenberry's end runs around official State Department channels as verging on insubordination and wanted him replaced. It's fair to say, then, that by the third or fourth go-round of PowerPoint slides, battlefield maps, and bulky video feeds, along with the ever-present fluorescent lighting, bad coffee, and stale air, everyone was sick of Afghanistan, sick of meetings, and sick of one another. As for me, well, I felt the weight of the office more than at any other time since I'd been sworn in. I tried not to let it show, keeping my expressions neutral as I asked questions, took notes, and occasionally doodled on the margins of the pad the staff had set out before me. Abstract patterns, mostly, sometimes people's faces or beach scenes, a seagull flying over a palm tree and ocean waves. But every so often my frustration would flare, especially whenever I heard anyone respond to a tough question by falling back on the argument that we needed to send more troops in order to show, quote, resolve. What does that mean exactly, I'd ask, sometimes too sharply? That we keep doubling down on bad decisions we've already made? Does anyone think that spinning our wheels in Afghanistan for another 10 years will impress our allies and strike fear in our enemies? It reminded me, I'd later tell Dennis, of the nursery rhyme about an old lady who swallowed a spider to catch a fly. She ends up swallowing a horse, I said. And she's dead, of course, Dennis said. Sometimes, after one of these marathon sessions, I'd wander back to the small pool house near the Oval to have a cigarette and soak in the silence, feeling the knots in my back, shoulders, neck, signs of sitting too much, but also of my state of mind. If only the decision on Afghanistan was a matter of resolve, I thought. Just will and steel and fire. 
That had been true for Lincoln as he tried to save the Union, and for FDR after Pearl Harbor, with America and the world facing a mortal threat from expansionist powers. In such circumstances, you harnessed all you had to mount a total war. But in the here and now, the threats we faced, deadly but stateless terrorist networks, otherwise feeble rogue nations out to get weapons of mass destruction, were real but not existential, and so resolve without foresight was worse than useless. It led us to fight the wrong wars and careen down rabbit holes. It made us administrators of inhospitable terrain and bred more enemies than we killed. Because of our unmatched power, America had choices about what and when and how to fight. To claim otherwise, to insist that our safety and our standing in the world required us to do all that we could for as long as we could in every single instance, was an abdication of moral responsibility. The certainty it offered, a comforting lie. Around six in the morning on October 9th, 2009, the White House operator jolted me from sleep to say that Robert Gibbs was on the line. Calls that early for my staff were rare, and my heart froze. Was it a terrorist attack? A natural disaster? You were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, Gibbs said. What do you mean? They just announced it a few minutes ago. For what? Gibbs tactfully ignored the question. Favs would be waiting outside the Oval to work with me on whatever statement I wanted to make, he said. After I hung up, Michelle asked what the call was about. I'm getting the Nobel Peace Prize. That's wonderful, honey, she said, then rolled over to get a little more shut-eye. An hour and a half later, Malia and Sasha stopped by the dining room as I was having breakfast. Great news, Daddy, Malia said, hitching her backpack over her shoulders. You won the Nobel Prize. And it's Bo's birthday. Plus, it's going to be a three-day weekend, Sasha added, doing a little fist bump. They both kissed me on the cheek before heading out the door for school. In the Rose Garden, I told the assembled press corps that less than a year into my presidency, I didn't feel I deserved to be in the company of those transformative figures who'd been honored in the past. Instead, I saw the prize as a call to action, a means for the Nobel Committee to give momentum to causes for which American leadership was vital reducing the threats of nuclear weapons and climate change, shrinking economic inequality, upholding human rights, and bridging the racial, ethnic, and religious divides that so often fed conflict. I said I thought the award should be shared with others around the world who labored, often without recognition, for justice, peace, and human dignity. Walking back into the Oval, I asked Katie to hold the congratulatory calls that were starting to come in and took a few minutes to consider the widening gap between the expectations and the realities of my presidency. Six days earlier, 300 Afghan militants had overrun a small U.S. military outpost in the Hindu Kush, killing eight of our soldiers and wounding 27 more. October would become the deadliest month for U.S. troops in Afghanistan since the start of the war eight years earlier. And rather than ushering in a new era of peace, I was facing the prospect of committing more soldiers to war. Late that month, Attorney General Eric Holder and I took a midnight flight to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware to witness the return to U.S. soil of the remains of 15 U.S. soldiers and three drug enforcement agents who'd been killed in back-to-back -back incidents in Afghanistan, a deadly helicopter crash, and two roadside bombings in Kandahar province. A president's attendance at these dignified transfers, as they were called, was rare, but I thought it important now more than ever, to be present. 
Since the Gulf War, the Defense Department had barred media coverage of the homecomings of service members' caskets. But with the help of Bob Gates, I'd reversed this policy earlier in the year, leaving the decision to individual families. Having at least some of these transfers publicly documented, I felt, gave our country a clear means to reckon with the costs of war, the pain of each loss. And on this night, at the end of a devastating month in Afghanistan, with the future of the war under debate, one of the families had elected to have the moment recorded. There was a constant hush throughout the four or five hours I was on the base. In the small plane chapel, where Holder and I joined the families who had gathered, inside the cargo bay of the C-17 aircraft that held the 18 flag-draped transfer cases, where an army chaplain's solemn prayer echoed against the metallic walls. On the tarmac, where we stood at attention and watched six pallbearers dressed in army fatigues, white gloves, and black berets, carry the heavy cases one by one to the rows of waiting vehicles, the world silent except for the howl of wind and the cadence of steps. On the flight back, with sunrise still a few hours away. The only words I could remember from the entire visit were those of one soldier's mother. Don't leave those boys who are still over there hanging. She looked exhausted, her face hollowed by grief. I promised I wouldn't, not knowing whether that meant sending more soldiers to finish the mission for which her son had made the ultimate sacrifice, or winding down a muddled and lengthy conflict that would cut short the lives of other people's children. It was left for me to decide. A week later, another disaster struck our military, this time closer to home. On November 5th, a U.S. Army major and psychiatrist named Nadal Hassan walked into a building at the Fort Hood Army Base in Killeen, Texas, pulled out a semi-automatic pistol he'd purchased at a local gun store, and opened fire, killing 13 people and wounding scores of others before being shot and apprehended by base police officers. Once again, I flew to comfort grieving families, then spoke at an outdoor memorial service. As a trumpet played taps, its plaintive melody punctuated by muffled sobs in the audience, my eyes traveled the memorials to the fallen soldiers. A framed photograph, a pair of empty combat boots, a helmet set atop a rifle. I thought about what John Brennan and FBI Director Robert Mueller had told me in briefings on the shooting. Hassan, a U.S.-born Muslim with a troubling record of erratic behavior, appeared to have been radicalized over the Internet. In particular, he'd been inspired by, and repeatedly sent emails to, a charismatic Yemeni-American cleric named Anwar al-Awaki, who had a broad international following and was believed to be the leading figure in al-Qaeda's increasingly active branch in Yemen. According to Muller and Brennan, there were early indications that the Defense Department, the FBI, and the Joint Terrorism Task Force had all been alerted in one way or another to Hassan's possible drift toward radicalism, but that interagency information sharing systems had failed to connect the dots in a way that might have headed off the tragedy. The eulogies ended. Taps began again. Across Fort Hood, I imagined soldiers busily preparing for deployments to Afghanistan in the fight against the Taliban, and I couldn't help but wonder whether the greater threat might now actually lie elsewhere not just in Yemen or Somalia, but also in the specter of homegrown terrorism, in the febrile minds of men like Hassan and a borderless cyber world, the power and reach of which we didn't yet fully comprehend. In late November 2009, we held our ninth and final Afghan review session. For all the drama, 
the substantive differences between members of my team had by this point shrunk considerably. The generals conceded that eradicating the Taliban from Afghanistan was unrealistic. Joe and my NSC staff acknowledged that CT operations against al-Qaeda couldn't work if the Taliban overran the country or inhibited our intelligence collection. We landed on a set of achievable objectives. Reducing the level of Taliban activity so they didn't threaten major population centers. Pushing Karzai to reform a handful of key departments, like the ministries of defense and finance, rather than trying to get him to revamp the entire government. Accelerating the training of local forces that would eventually allow the Afghan people to secure their own country. The team also agreed that meeting even these more modest objectives was going to require additional U.S. troops. The only remaining dispute was how many and for how long. The generals continued to hold out for McChrystal's original request of 40,000, without providing a good explanation for why the more limited set of objectives we'd agreed to didn't reduce by a single soldier the number of troops needed. The CT-plus option that Biden had worked up with Hoss Cartwright and Douglas Lute called for another 20,000 troops to be devoted solely to CT operations and training. But it wasn't clear why either of those functions needed anything close to that many extra U.S. personnel. In both cases, I worried that the numbers were still being driven by ideological and institutional concerns rather than by the objectives we'd set. Ultimately, it was Gates who came up with a workable resolution. In a private memo to me, he explained that McChrystal's request anticipated the United States replacing the 10,000 Dutch and Canadian troops their governments had pledged to bring home. If I authorized three brigades for a total of 30,000 U.S. troops, it might be possible to use that commitment to leverage the other 10,000 from our allies. Gates also agreed that we treat any infusion of new troops more as a surge than an open-ended commitment, both by accelerating the pace of their arrival and by setting a timetable of 18 months for them to start coming home. For me, Gates's acceptance of a timetable was particularly significant. In the past, he joined the Joint Chiefs and Petraeus in resisting the idea, claiming the timetable signaled to the enemy that they could wait us out. He was now persuaded that Karzai might never make hard decisions about his own government's responsibilities, absent the knowledge that we'd be bringing troops home sooner rather than later. After talking it over with Joe, Rom, and the NSC staff, I decided to adopt Gates's proposal. There was a logic to it that went beyond simply splitting the difference between McChrystal's plan and the option Biden had worked up. In the short term, it gave McChrystal the firepower he needed to reverse the Taliban's momentum, protect population centers, and train up Afghan forces. But it set clear limits to coin and put us firmly on the path of a narrower CT approach two years out. Haggling remained over how firm to make the 30,000 troop cap. The Pentagon had a habit of deploying the approved number and then coming back with a request for thousands of, quote, enablers, medics, intelligence officers, and the like, which it insisted shouldn't count toward the total. And it took some time for Gates to sell the approach in his building. But a few days after Thanksgiving, I called an evening meeting in the Oval with Gates, Mullen, and Petraeus, as well as Rom, Jim Jones, and Joe, where, in essence, I had everyone sign on the dotted line. NSC staffers had prepared a detailed memo outlining my order. And along with Ram and Joe, they persuaded me that having the Pentagon brass look me in the eye and commit to an agreement laid out on paper was the only way to avoid their publicly second-guessing my decision if the war went south. It was an unusual and somewhat heavy-handed gesture, 
one that no doubt grated on Gates and the generals, and that I regretted almost immediately. A fitting end, I thought, to a messy, difficult stretch for my administration. I could take some satisfaction, though, in the fact that the review had served its purpose. Gates acknowledged that without producing a perfect plan, the hours of debate had made for a better plan. It forced us to refine America's strategic objectives in Afghanistan in a way that prevented mission creep. It established the utility of timetables for troop deployments in certain circumstances, something that had long been contested by the Washington National Security Establishment. Beyond putting an end to Pentagon freelancing for the duration of my presidency, it helped reaffirm the larger principle of civilian control over America's national security policymaking. Still, the bottom line was I'd be sending more young people to war. We announced the planned troop deployment on December 1st at West Point, the oldest and most storied of America's service academies. A Continental Army post during the Revolutionary War, a little over an hour north of New York City, it's a beautiful place. A series of black and gray granite structures arranged like a small city, high among green rolling hills, with a view over the broad and winding Hudson River. Before my speech, I visited with the West Point superintendent and glimpsed some of the buildings and grounds that had produced a who's who of America's most decorated military leaders, Grant and Lee, Patton and Eisenhower, MacArthur and Bradley, Westmoreland and Schwarzkopf. It was impossible not to be humbled and moved by the tradition these men represented, the service and sacrifice that had helped forge a nation, defeat fascism, and halt the march of totalitarianism. Just as it was necessary to recall that Lee had led a Confederate army intent on preserving slavery and granted overseen the slaughter of Indian tribes, that MacArthur had defied Truman's orders in Korea to disastrous effect, and Westmoreland had helped orchestrate an escalation in Vietnam that would scar a generation. Glory and tragedy. Courage and stupidity. One set of truths didn't negate the other. For war was contradiction, as was the history of America. The large auditorium near the center of West Point's campus was full by the time I arrived, and aside from VIPs like Gates, Hillary, and the Joint Chiefs, the audience was made up almost entirely of cadets. They were in uniform, gray tunics with black trim over white collars. The sizable number of blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans, and women in the ranks offered vivid testimony to the changes that had taken place since the school graduated its first class in 1805. As I entered the stage to a band playing the ceremonial ruffles and flourishes, the cadets stood in unison and applauded. And looking out at their faces, so earnest and full of the glow of youth, so certain of their destiny, and eager to defend their country. I felt my heart swell with an almost paternal pride. I just prayed that I and the others who commanded them were worthy of their trust. Nine days later, I flew to Oslo to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. The image of those young cadets weighed on me. Rather than ignore the tension between getting a peace prize and expanding a war, I decided to make it the centerpiece of my acceptance address. With the help of Ben Rhodes and Samantha Power, I wrote a first draft, drawing on the writings of thinkers like Reinhold Niebuhr and Gandhi to organize my argument that war is both terrible and sometimes necessary, that reconciling these seemingly contradictory ideas requires the community of nations to evolve higher standards for both the justification and conduct of war, and that avoidance of war requires a just peace founded on a common commitment to political freedom, a respect for human rights, 
and concrete strategies to expand economic opportunity around the world. I finished writing the speech in the dead of night aboard Air Force One as Michelle slept in our cabin, my weary eyes drawn away from the page every so often by the sight of a spectral moon over the Atlantic. Like everything in Norway, the Nobel ceremony, held in a brightly lit auditorium seating a few hundred people, was sensibly austere. There was a lovely performance by the young jazz artist Esperanza Spalding, an introduction by the head of the Nobel Committee, and then my address, all finished in around 90 minutes. The speech itself was well-received, even by some conservative commentators who remarked on my willingness to remind European audiences of the sacrifices made by U.S. troops in underwriting decades of peace. That evening, the Nobel Committee hosted a black-tie dinner in my honor, where I was seated next to the King of Norway, a gracious elderly man who told me about sailing through his country's fjords. My sister Maya, along with friends like Marty and Anita, had flown in to join us, and everyone looked very sophisticated as they sipped champagne and chewed on grilled elk and later danced to a surprisingly good swing orchestra. What I remember most, though, was a scene that took place before dinner at the hotel. Michelle and I had just finished getting dressed when Marvin knocked on the door and told us to look out our four-story window. Pulling back the shades, we saw that several thousand people had gathered in the early dusk, filling the narrow street below. Each person held aloft a single-lit candle, the city's traditional way to express appreciation for that year's Peace Prize winner. It was a magical sight, as if a pool of stars had descended from the sky. And as Michelle and I leaned out to wave, the night air brisk on our cheeks, the crowd cheering wildly. I couldn't help but think about the daily fighting that continued to consume Iraq and Afghanistan and all the cruelty and suffering and injustice that my administration had barely even begun to deal with. The idea that I, or any one person, could bring order to such chaos seemed laughable. On some level, the crowds below were cheering an illusion. And yet, in the flickering of those candles, I saw something else. I saw an expression of the spirit of millions of people around the world. The U.S. soldier manning a post in Kandahar. The mother in Iran teaching her daughter to read. The Russian pro-democracy activist mustering his courage for an upcoming demonstration. All those who refused to give up on the idea that life could be better and that whatever the risks and hardships, they had a role to play. Whatever you do won't be enough, I heard their voices say. Try anyway. Chapter 19 Running for the presidency, I'd promised Americans a different kind of foreign policy than the sort we'd been practicing since 9-11. Iraq and Afghanistan offered stark lessons in how quickly a president's options narrowed once a war had begun. I was determined to shift a certain mindset that had gripped not just the Bush administration, but much of Washington one that saw threats around every corner, took a perverse pride in acting unilaterally, and considered military action as an almost routine means of addressing foreign policy challenges. In our interactions with other nations, we had become obdurate and short-sighted, resistant to the hard, slow work of building coalitions and consensus. We closed ourselves off from other points of view. I believed America's security depended on strengthening our alliances and international institutions. I saw military action as a tool of last, not first, resort. We had to manage the wars we were in, but I also wanted to put this broader faith in diplomacy to the test. It began with a change in tone. 
From the start of my administration, we made sure that every foreign policy statement coming out of the White House emphasized the importance of international cooperation and America's intention to engage other nations, big and small, on the basis of mutual interest and respect. We looked for small but symbolic ways to shift policy, like boosting the international affairs budget at the State Department or bringing the United States out of arrears on its U.N. dues after several years in which the Bush administration and the Republican-controlled Congress had withheld certain payments. Consistent with the adage that 80% of success is a matter of showing up, we also made a point of visiting parts of the world that had been neglected by the Bush administration with its all-consuming focus on terrorism in the Middle East. Hillary, in particular, was a whirlwind that first year, hopping from continent to continent as doggedly as she'd once campaigned for the presidency. Seeing the excitement her visits generated in foreign capitals, I felt vindicated in my decision to appoint her as America's top diplomat. It wasn't just that she was treated as a peer by world leaders. Wherever she went, the public saw her presence in their country as a sign that they really mattered to us. If we want other countries to support our priorities, I told my NSC team, we can't just bully them into it. We've got to show them we're taking their perspectives into account, or at least can find them on a map. To be known. To be heard. To have one's unique identity recognized and seen as worthy. It was a universal human desire, I thought, as true for nations and peoples as it was for individuals. If I understood that basic truth more than some of my predecessors, perhaps it was because I'd spent a big chunk of my childhood abroad and had family in places long considered, quote, backward and underdeveloped. Or maybe it was because, as an African American, I'd experienced what it was like not to be fully seen inside my own country. For whatever reason, I made a point of showing an interest in the history, culture, and peoples of the places we visited. Ben joked that my overseas speeches could be reduced to a simple algorithm. Greeting in foreign language, often badly pronounced. It's wonderful to be in this beautiful country that's made lasting contributions to world civilization. List of stuff. There's a long history of friendship between our two nations. Inspiring anecdote. And it's in part due to the contributions of the millions of proud, hyphenated Americans, whose ancestors immigrated to our shores that the United States is the nation it is today. It might have been corny, but the smiles and nods of foreign audiences showed the extent to which simple acts of acknowledgement mattered. For the same reason, we tried to include some high-profile sightseeing on all my foreign trips, something to get me out of hotels and beyond the palace gates. My interest in touring Istanbul's Blue Mosque or visiting a local eatery in Ho Chi Minh City I knew would make a far more lasting impression on the average Turkish or Vietnamese citizen than any bilateral meeting or press conference talking point. Just as important, these stops gave me a chance to interact, at least a little, with ordinary people rather than just government officials and wealthy elites, who in many countries were viewed as out of touch. But our most effective public diplomacy tool came straight out of my campaign playbook. During my international trips, I made a point of hosting town hall meetings with young people. The first time we tried it, with a crowd of more than 3,000 European students during the NATO summit in Strasbourg, we weren't sure what to expect. Would I get heckled? Would I bore them with long, convoluted answers? But after an unscripted hour in which members of the audience enthusiastically questioned me on everything from climate change to fighting terrorism and offered their own good-humored observations, including the fact that Barak means peach in Hungarian, 
we decided to make it a regular feature of my foreign travel. The town halls were usually broadcast live on the country's national stations, and whether they emanated from Buenos Aires, Mumbai, or Johannesburg, they attracted a large viewership. For folks in many parts of the world, the sight of a head of state making him or herself accessible for direct questioning from citizens was a novelty and a more meaningful argument for democracy than any lecture I might give. In consultation with our local embassies, we often invited young activists from the host country's marginalized groups, religious or ethnic minorities, refugees, LGBTQ students, to participate. By handing them a microphone and letting them tell their own stories, I could expose a nation of viewers to the justness of their claims. The young people I met in those town halls were a steady source of personal inspiration. They made me laugh and sometimes made me tear up. In their idealism, they reminded me of the youthful organizers and volunteers who had propelled me into the presidency and of the bonds we share across racial, ethnic, and national boundaries when we learn to set aside our fear. No matter how frustrated or discouraged I might have felt going in, I always came out of those town halls feeling recharged, as if I'd been dipped into a cool forest spring. So long as young men and women like that existed in every corner of this earth, I told myself, there's reason enough to hope. Around the world, public attitudes towards the United States had steadily improved since I'd taken office, demonstrating that our early diplomatic work was paying off. This heightened popularity made it easier for our allies to sustain or even boost their troop contributions in Afghanistan, knowing that their citizens trusted our leadership. It gave me and Tim Geithner more leverage when coordinating the international response to the financial crisis. After North Korea started testing ballistic missiles, Susan Rice was able to get the Security Council to pass robust international sanctions, in part because of her skill and tenacity, but also, she told me, because, quote, a lot of countries want to be seen as being aligned with you. Still, there were limits to what a diplomatic charm offensive could accomplish. At the end of the day, each nation's foreign policy remained driven by its own economic interests, geography, ethnic and religious schisms, territorial disputes, founding myths, lasting traumas, ancient animosities, and, most of all, the imperatives of those who had and sought to maintain power. It was the rare foreign leader who was susceptible to moral suasion alone. Those who sat atop repressive governments could for the most part safely ignore public opinion. To make progress on the thorniest foreign policy issues, I needed a second kind of diplomacy, one of concrete rewards and punishments designed to alter the calculations of hard, ruthless leaders. And throughout my first year, interactions with leaders of three countries in particular, Iran, Russia, and China, gave me an early indication of how difficult that would be. Of the three, Iran posed the least serious challenge to America's long-term interests, but won the prize for most actively hostile. Heir to the great Persian empires of antiquity, once an epicenter of science and art during Islam's medieval golden age, Iran had for many years barely registered in the minds of U.S. policymakers. With Turkey and Iraq on its western border and Afghanistan and Pakistan to the east, it was generally viewed as just another poor Middle Eastern country, its territory shrunk by civil conflict and ascendant European powers. In 1951, though, Iran's secular, left-leaning parliament moved to nationalize the country's oil fields, seizing control of profits that had once gone to the British government 
which owned a majority stake in Iran's biggest oil production and export company. Unhappy to be boxed out, the Brits imposed a naval blockade to prevent Iran from shipping oil to would-be buyers. They also convinced the Eisenhower administration that the new Iranian government was tilting towards the Soviets, leading Eisenhower to greenlight Operation Ajax, a CIA MI6-engineered coup that deposed Iran's democratically elected prime minister and consolidated power in the hands of the country's young monarch, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Operation Ajax set a pattern for U.S. miscalculation in dealing with developing countries that lasted throughout the Cold War, mistaking nationalist aspirations for communist plots, equating commercial interests with national security, subverting democratically elected governments, and aligning ourselves with autocrats when we determined it was to our benefit. Still, for the first 27 years, U.S. policymakers must have figured their gambit in Iran had worked out just fine. The Shah became a stalwart ally who extended contracts to U.S. oil companies and bought plenty of expensive U.S. weaponry. He maintained friendly relations with Israel, gave women the right to vote, used the country's growing wealth to modernize the economy and the education system, and mingled easily with Western business people and European royalty. Less obvious to outsiders was a simmering discontent with the Shah's extravagant spending, ruthless repression, the secret police were notorious for torturing and killing dissidents, and promotion of Western social mores that, in the eyes of conservative clerics and their many followers, violated the core tenets of Islam. Nor did CIA analysts pay much attention to the growing influence of an exiled, messianic Shia cleric, Ayatollah Khomeini, whose writings and speeches denounced the Shah as a Western puppet and called on the faithful to replace the existing order with an Islamic state governed by Sharia law. So U.S. officials were caught by surprise when a series of demonstrations inside Iran at the start of 1978 blossomed into a full-blown populist revolution. In successive waves, followers of Khomeini's were joined in the streets by disaffected workers, unemployed youths, and pro-democracy forces seeking a return to constitutional rule. By the beginning of 1979, with the number of demonstrators swelling into the millions, the Shah quietly fled the country and was briefly admitted into the United States for medical treatment. America's nightly newscasts were filled with images of the Ayatollah, white-bearded with the smoldering eyes of a prophet, stepping off a plane in triumphant return from exile before a sea of adoring supporters. Most Americans knew little about this history as the revolution unfolded, or why people in a faraway country were suddenly burning Uncle Sam in effigy and chanting death to America. I sure didn't. I was 17 at the time, still in high school and just on the cusp of political awareness. I only vaguely understood the details of all that happened next, how Khomeini installed himself as supreme leader and sidelined former secular and reformist allies, how he formed a paramilitary Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, to crush anybody who challenged the new regime, and how he used the drama that unfolded when radicalized students stormed the U.S. Embassy and took American hostages to help solidify the revolution and humiliate the world's most powerful nation. But it's hard to overstate just how much, 30 years later, the fallout from these events still shaped the geopolitical landscape of my presidency. Iran's revolution inspired a slew of other radical Islamic movements intent on duplicating its success. Khomeini's call to overthrow Sunni Arab monarchies turned Iran and the House of Saud into bitter enemies and sharpened sectarian conflict across the Middle East. 
Iraq's attempted 1980 invasion of Iran, and the bloody eight-year war that followed, a war in which the Gulf states provided Saddam Hussein with financing, while the Soviets supplied Khomeini's military with arms, including chemical weapons, accelerated Iran's sponsorship of terrorism as a way to offset its enemies' military advantages. The United States, under Reagan, cynically tried to have it both ways, publicly backing Iraq while secretly selling arms to Iran. Khomeini's vow to wipe Israel off the map manifest in the IRGC's support for armed proxies like the Lebanon-based Shia militia Hezbollah and the military wing of the Palestinian resistance group Hamas, made the Iranian regime Israel's single greatest security threat and contributed to the general hardening of Israeli attitudes towards possible peace with its neighbors. More broadly, Khomeini's rendering of the world as a Manichaean clash between the forces of Allah and those of, quote, the great Satan, America, seeped like a toxin into the mind's not just of future jihadists, but of those in the West already inclined to view Muslims as objects of suspicion and fear. Khomeini died in 1989. His successor, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, a cleric who'd barely traveled outside his own country and never would again, apparently matched Khomeini in his hatred of America. Despite his title as supreme leader, Khamenei's authority wasn't absolute. He had to confer with a powerful council of clerics, while day-to-day -day responsibility for running of the government fell to a popularly elected president. There had been a period toward the end of the Clinton administration and the start of the Bush administration when more moderate forces inside Iran had gained a little traction, offering the prospect of a thaw in U.S.-Iranian relations. After 9-11, Iran's then-president, Mohammad Khatami, had even reached out to the Bush administration with offers to help America's response in neighboring Afghanistan but U.S. officials had ignored the gesture. And once President Bush named Iran, along with Iraq and North Korea, as part of a, quote, axis of evil in his 2002 State of the Union speech, whatever diplomatic window existed effectively slammed shut. By the time I took office, conservative hardliners were firmly back in charge in Tehran, led by a new president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, whose manic anti-Western outbursts Holocaust denial, and persecution of gays and others he considered a threat made him a perfect distillation of the regime's most hateful aspects. Iranian weapons were still being sent to militants intent on killing American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. invasion of Iraq had greatly strengthened Iran's strategic position in the region by replacing its sworn enemy, Saddam Hussein, with a Shia-led government subject to Iranian influence. Hezbollah, Iran's proxy, had emerged as the most powerful faction in Lebanon, with Iranian-supplied missiles that could now reach Tel Aviv. The Saudis and Israelis spoke in alarming tones of an ever-expanding, quote, Shia crescent of Iranian influence and made no secret of their interest in the possibility of a U.S.-initiated regime change. Under any circumstances, then, Iran would have been a grade-A headache for my administration. But it was the country's accelerating nuclear program that threatened to turn a bad situation into a full-blown crisis. The regime had inherited nuclear facilities built during the time of the Shah and under the UN's Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, to which Iran had been a signatory since its ratification in 1970, it had the right to use nuclear energy for peaceful means. Unfortunately, the same centrifuge technology used to spin and enrich the low-enriched uranium, or LEU, that fueled nuclear power plants, could be modified to produce weapons-grade 
highly enriched uranium, or HEU. As one of our experts put it, with enough HEU, a smart high school physics student with access to the Internet can produce a bomb. Between 2003 and 2009, Iran boosted its total number of uranium-enriching centrifuges from 100 to as many as 5,000, far more than any peaceful program could justify. The U.S. intelligence community was reasonably confident that Iran didn't have a nuclear weapon yet, but it was also convinced that the regime had narrowed its, quote, breakout capacity, the window of time needed to produce enough uranium to build a viable nuclear weapon to a potentially dangerous point. An Iranian nuclear arsenal wouldn't need to threaten the U.S. homeland. Just the possibility of a nuclear strike or nuclear terrorism in the Middle East would severely limit a future U.S. president's options to check Iranian aggression toward its neighbors. The Saudis would likely react by pursuing their own rival, Sunni bomb, triggering a nuclear arms race in the world's most volatile region. Meanwhile, Israel, reportedly holding a trove of undeclared nuclear weapons itself, viewed a nuclear-armed Iran as an existential threat and was allegedly drawing up plans for a preemptive strike against Iran's facilities. Any action, reaction, or miscalculation by any of these parties could plunge the Middle East and the United States into yet another conflict at a time when we still had 180,000 highly exposed troops along Iran's borders, and when any big spike in oil prices could send the world economy deeper into a tailspin. At times during my administration, we gamed out the scenarios for what a conflict with Iran would look like. I left those conversations weighed down by the knowledge that if war became necessary, nearly everything else I was trying to achieve would likely be upended. For all these reasons, my team and I had spent much of the transition discussing how to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon ideally through diplomacy, rather than by starting another war. We settled on a two-step strategy. Because there had been almost no high-level contact between the United States and Iran since 1980, step one involved direct outreach. As I'd said in my inaugural address, we were ready to extend a hand to those willing to unclench their fists. Within weeks of taking office, I'd sent a secret letter to Ayatollah Khomeini, through a channel we had with Iranian diplomats of the United Nations, suggesting that we open a dialogue between our two countries on a range of issues, including Iran's nuclear program. Khamenei's answer was blunt. Iran had no interest in direct talks. He did, however, take the opportunity to suggest ways the United States could stop being an imperialist bully. Guess he's not unclenching his fist anytime soon, Rom said after reading a copy of Khamenei's letter, which had been translated from Farsi. Only enough to give me the middle finger, I said. The truth was, none of us in the White House had expected a positive response. I'd sent the letter anyway because I wanted to establish that the impediment to diplomacy was not America's intransigence, it was Iran's. I reinforced a message of openness to the broader Iranian public through a traditional Persian New Year's or Nehru's greeting that we put online in March. As it was any prospects of an early breakthrough were extinguished in June 2009, when Iranian opposition candidate Mir Hossein Mosavi credibly accused government officials of vote-rigging to help re-elect Ahmadinejad to a second term as president. Millions of protesters inside Iran took to the streets to challenge the election results, launching a self-described green movement that posed one of the most significant internal challenges to the Islamic State since the 1979 revolution. The ensuing crackdown was merciless and swift.
Mousavi and other opposition leaders were placed under house arrest. Peaceful marchers were beaten, and a significant number were killed. One night, from the comfort of my residence, I scanned the reports of the protests online and saw a video of a young woman shot in the streets, a web of blood spreading across her face as she began to die, her eyes gazing upward in reproach. It was a haunting reminder of the price so many people around the world paid for wanting some say in how they were governed, and my first impulse was to express strong support for the demonstrators. But when I gathered my national security team, our Iran experts advised against such a move. According to them, any statement from me would likely backfire. Already, regime hardliners were pushing the fiction that foreign agents were behind the demonstrations, and activists inside Iran feared that any supportive statements from the U.S. government would be seized upon to discredit their movement. I felt obliged to heed these warnings and signed off on a series of bland, bureaucratic statements. We continue to monitor the entire situation closely. The universal rights to assembly and free speech must be respected, urging a peaceful resolution that reflected the will of the Iranian people. As the violence escalated, so did my condemnation. Still, such a passive approach didn't sit well with me, and not just because I had to listen to Republicans howl that I was coddling a murderous regime. I was learning yet another difficult lesson about the presidency. Then my heart was now chained to strategic considerations and tactical analysis, my convictions subject to counterintuitive arguments, that in the most powerful office on earth, I had less freedom to say what I meant and act on what I felt than I'd had as a senator or as an ordinary citizen, disgusted by the sight of a young woman gunned down by her own government. Having been rebuffed in our attempts to open a dialogue with Iran, and with the country spiraling into chaos and further repression, we shifted to step two of our nonproliferation strategy, mobilizing the international community to apply tough, multilateral economic sanctions that might force Iran to the negotiating table. The UN Security Council had already passed multiple resolutions calling on Iran to halt its enrichment activities. It had also authorized limited sanctions against Iran and formed a group called the P5 Plus One, representing the five permanent Security Council members, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, and China, plus Germany, to meet with Iranian officials in the hope of pushing the regime back into nuclear nonproliferation treaty compliance. The problem was that the existing sanctions were too weak to have much of an impact. Even U.S. allies like Germany continued to do a healthy amount of business with Iran, and just about everyone bought its oil. The Bush administration had unilaterally imposed additional U.S. sanctions, but those were largely symbolic since U.S. companies had been blocked from doing business with Iran since 1995. With oil prices high and its economy growing, Iran had been more than happy to string along the P5 Plus One with regular negotiating sessions that produced nothing other than a commitment to more talking. To get Iran's attention, we'd have to persuade other countries to tighten the vice. And that meant getting buy-in from a pair of powerful, historic adversaries that didn't like sanctions as a matter of principle had friendly diplomatic and commercial relations with Iran, and mistrusted U.S. intentions almost as much as Tehran did. Having come of age in the 1960s and 70s, I was old enough to recall the Cold War as the defining reality of international affairs, the force that chopped Europe in two, fueled a nuclear arms race, and generated proxy wars around the globe. It shaped my childhood imagination, 
In school books, newspapers, spy novels, and movies, the Soviet Union was the fearsome adversary in a contest between freedom and tyranny. I was also part of a post-Vietnam generation that had learned to question its own government and saw how, from the rise of McCarthyism to support for South Africa's apartheid regime, Cold War thinking had often led America to betray its ideals. This awareness didn't stop me from believing we should contain the spread of Marxist totalitarianism. But it made me wary of the notion that good resided only on our side and bad on theirs. Or that a people who produced Tolstoy and Tchaikovsky were inherently different from us. Instead, the evils of the Soviet system struck me as a variation on a broader human tragedy, the way abstract theories and rigid orthodoxy can curdle into repression, how readily we justify moral compromise and relinquish our freedoms, how power can corrupt and fear can compound and language can be debased. None of that was unique to Soviets or communists, I thought. It was true for all of us. The brave struggle of dissidents behind the Iron Curtain felt of a peace with, rather than distinct from, the larger struggle for human dignity taking place elsewhere in the world, including America. When, in the mid-1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev took over as the General Secretary of the Communist Party and ushered in the cautious liberalization known as perestroika and glasnost, I studied what happened closely, wondering if it signaled the dawning of a new age. And when, just a few years later, the Berlin Wall fell, and democratic activists inside Russia lifted Boris Yeltsin to power, sweeping aside the old communist order and dissolving the Soviet Union, I considered it not just a victory for the West, but a testimony to the power of a mobilized citizenry and a warning for despots everywhere. If the tumult that engulfed Russia in the 1990s, economic collapse, unfettered corruption, right-wing populism, shadowy oligarchs, gave me pause, Nevertheless, I held out hope that a more just, prosperous, and free Russia would emerge from the inevitably difficult transition to free markets and representative government. I'd mostly been cured of that optimism by the time I became president. It was true that Yeltsin's successor, Vladimir Putin, who had come to power in 1999, claimed no interest in a return to Marxism-Leninism, a mistake, he once called it. And he had successfully stabilized the nation's economy in large part thanks to a huge increase in revenues brought about by rising oil prices. Elections were now held in accordance with the Russian Constitution. Capitalists were everywhere. Ordinary Russians could travel abroad. And pro-democracy activists, like the chess master Garry Kasparov, could get away with criticizing the government without an immediate trip to the gulag. And yet, with each year that Putin remained in power, the new Russia looked more like the old. It became clear that a market economy and periodic elections could go hand-in-hand hand with a soft authoritarianism that steadily concentrated power in Putin's hands and shrank the space for meaningful dissent. Oligarchs who cooperated with Putin became some of the world's wealthiest men. Those who broke from Putin found themselves subject to various criminal prosecutions and stripped of their assets, and Kasparov ultimately did spend a few days in jail for leading an anti-Putin march. Putin's cronies were handed control of the country's major media outlets, and the rest were pressured into ensuring him coverage every bit as friendly as the state-owned media had once provided communist rulers. Independent journalists and civic leaders found themselves monitored by the FSB, the modern incarnation of the KGB, or in some cases, turned up dead. What's more, Putin's power didn't rest on simple coercion. 
he was genuinely popular. His approval ratings at home rarely dipped below 60%. It was a popularity rooted in old-fashioned nationalism, the promise to restore Mother Russia to its former glory, to relieve the sense of disruption and humiliation so many Russians had felt over the previous two decades. Putin could sell that vision because he'd experienced those disruptions himself. Born into a family without connections or privilege, he'd methodically climbed the Soviet ladder, reservist training with the Red Army, law studies at Leningrad State University, a career in the KGB. After years of loyal and effective service to the state, he'd secured a position of modest stature and respectability, only to see the system he devoted his life to capsize overnight when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. He was at that time stationed with the KGB in Dresden, East Germany, and he reportedly spent the next few days scrambling to destroy files and standing guard against possible looters. He'd made a quick pivot to the emerging post-Soviet reality, allying himself to democratic reformer Anatoly Sobchak, a mentor from law school who became mayor of St. Petersburg. Moving into national politics, Putin rose through the ranks of the Yeltsin administration with breathtaking speed, using his power in a variety of posts, including director of the FSB, to pick up allies, dole out favors, gather secrets, and outmaneuver rivals. Yeltsin appointed Putin prime minister in August 1999, and then four months later, hobbled by corruption scandals, bad health, a legendary drinking problem, and a record of catastrophic economic mismanagement, surprised everyone by vacating his office. That made Putin, then 47, the acting president of Russia, and provided him with the head start he needed to get elected to a full presidential term three months later. One of Putin's first acts was to grant Yeltsin a blanket pardon for any wrongdoing. In the hands of the shrewd and the ruthless, chaos had proven a gift. But whether out of instinct or calculation, Putin also understood the Russian public's longing for order. While few people had an interest in returning to the days of collective farming and empty store shelves, they were tired and scared and resented those, both at home and abroad, who appeared to have taken advantage of Yeltsin's weakness. They preferred a strong hand, which Putin was only too happy to provide. He reasserted Russian control over the predominantly Muslim province of Chechnya, making no apologies for matching the brutal terrorist tactics of separatist rebels there with unrelenting military violence. He revived Soviet-style surveillance powers in the name of keeping people safe. When democratic activists challenged Putin's autocratic tendencies, he dismissed them as tools of the West. He resurrected pre-communist and even communist symbols and embraced the long-suppressed Russian Orthodox Church. Fond of showy public works projects, he pursued wildly expensive spectacles, including a bid to host the Winter Olympics in the summer resort town of Sochi. With the fastidiousness of a teenager on Instagram, he curated a constant stream of photo ops, projecting an almost satirical image of masculine vigor, Putin riding on a horse with his shirt off, Putin playing hockey, all the while practicing a casual chauvinism and homophobia and insisting that Russian values were being infected by foreign elements. Everything Putin did fed the narrative that under his firm paternal guidance, Russia had regained its mojo. There was just one problem for Putin. Russia wasn't a superpower anymore. Despite having a nuclear arsenal second only to our own, Russia lacked the vast network of alliances and bases that allowed the United States to project its military power across the globe. 
Russia's economy remains smaller than those of Italy, Canada, and Brazil, dependent almost entirely on oil, gas, mineral, and arms exports. Moscow's high-end shopping districts testified to the country's transformation from a creaky state-run economy to one with a growing number of billionaires. But the pinched lives of ordinary Russians spoke to how little of this new wealth trickled down. According to various international indicators, the levels of Russian corruption and inequality rivaled those in parts of the developing world, and its male life expectancy in 2009 was lower than that of Bangladesh. Few, if any, young Africans, Asians, or Latin Americans looked to Russia for inspiration in the fight to reform their societies, or felt their imaginations stirred by Russian movies or music, or dreamed of studying there, much less emigrating. Shorn of its ideological underpinnings, the once shiny promise of workers uniting to throw off their chains, Putin's Russia came off as insular and suspicious of outsiders, to be feared, perhaps, but not emulated. It was this gap between the truth of modern-day Russia and Putin's insistence on its superpower status, I thought, that helped account for the country's increasingly combative foreign relations. Much of the ire was directed at us. In public remarks, Putin became sharply critical of American policy. When U.S.-backed initiatives came before the U.N. Security Council, he made sure Russia blocked them or watered them down, particularly anything touching on human rights. More consequential were Putin's escalating efforts to prevent former Soviet bloc countries, now independent, from breaking free of Russia's orbit. Our diplomats routinely received complaints from Russia's neighbors about instances of intimidation, economic pressure, misinformation campaigns, covert electioneering, contributions to pro-Russian political candidates, or outright bribery. In the case of Ukraine, there'd been the mysterious poisoning of Viktor Yushchenko, a reformist activist turned president who Moscow opposed. And then, of course, there had been the invasion of Georgia during the summer of 2008. It was hard to know how far down this dangerous path Russia planned to go. Putin was no longer Russia's president. Despite dominating the polls, he'd chosen to abide by Russia's constitutional prohibition against three consecutive terms, swapping places with Dmitry Medvedev, his former deputy who, upon being elected as president in 2008, had promptly installed Putin as his prime minister. The consensus among analysts was that Medvedev was merely keeping the presidential seat warm until 2012, when Putin would be eligible to run again. Still, Putin's decision not just to step down, but to promote a younger man with a reputation for relatively liberal, pro-Western views, suggested he at least cared about appearances. It even offered the possibility that Putin would eventually leave elective office and settle into the role of power broker and elder statesman, allowing a new generation of leadership to put Russia back on the path toward a modern, lawful democracy. All that was possible, but not likely. Since the time of the Tsars, historians had noted Russia's tendency to adopt with much fanfare the latest European ideas, whether representative government or modern bureaucracy, free markets, or state socialism, only to subordinate or abandon such imported notions in favor of older, harsher ways of maintaining the social order. In the battle for Russia's identity, fear and fatalism usually beat out hope and change. It was an understandable response to a thousand-year history of Mongol invasions, Byzantine intrigues, great famines, pervasive serfdom, unbridled tyranny, countless insurrections, 
bloody revolutions, crippling wars, years-long sieges, and millions upon millions slaughtered, all on a frigid landscape that forgave nothing. In July, I flew to Moscow for my first official visit to Russia as president. Accepting the invitation, Medvedev had extended at the G20 meeting in April. My thought was that we could continue with our proposed reset, focusing on areas of common interest while acknowledging and managing our significant differences. School was out for the summer, which meant that Michelle, Malia, and Sasha could join me. And under the pretext of needing help with the girls, and with the promise of a tour of the Vatican, and an audience with the Pope when we continued on to Italy for a G8 summit, Michelle convinced my mother-in-law and our close friend Mama Kay to come along as well. Our daughters had always been great travelers, cheerfully enduring our annual nine-hour round-trip commercial flight between Chicago and Hawaii, never whining or throwing tantrums or kicking the seats in front of them, instead engrossing themselves in the games, puzzles, and books that Michelle doled out with military precision at regular intervals. Flying on Air Force One was a definite upgrade for them, with a choice of in-flight movies, actual beds to sleep in, and a flight crew plying them with all kinds of snacks. But still, traveling overseas with the President of the United States presented a new set of challenges. They got woken up just a few hours after falling asleep to put on new dresses and fancy shoes and have their hair combed tight so that they'd be presentable once we landed. They had to smile for photographers as we walked down the stairs, then introduce themselves to a row of gray-haired dignitaries who stood waiting on the tarmac, careful to maintain eye contact and not mumble, as their mother had taught them, and trying not to look bored as their dad engaged in meaningless chit-chat before everyone climbed into the awaiting beast. Rolling down a Moscow freeway, I asked Malia how she was holding up. She looked catatonic, her big brown eyes staring blankly at a spot over my shoulder. I think, she said, this is the most tired I've ever been in my entire life. A mid-morning nap seemed to cure the girls' jet lag, and there are moments of us together in Moscow that I recall as if they happened yesterday. Sasha striding beside me through the grand red-carpeted halls of the Kremlin, followed by a set of towering uniformed Russian officers, her hands in the pockets of a tan trench coat as if she were a pint-sized secret agent or Malia trying to suppress a grimace after she gamely agreed to taste caviar on a rooftop restaurant overlooking Red Square. True to form, Sasha refused the heap of slimy black stuff on my spoon, even at the risk of not getting a crack at the ice cream station later. But traveling as the first family wasn't the same as traveling during the campaign, when we'd ride an RV from town to town and Mish and the girls would stay at my side through parades and county fairs. I now had my itinerary, and they had theirs along with their own support staff, briefings, and official photographer. At the end of our first night in Moscow, when we reunited at the Ritz-Carlton, the four of us lay on the bed, and Malia asked why I hadn't gone with them to see the Russian dancers and doll makers. Michelle leaned over and whispered conspiratorially, Your father's not allowed to have fun. He has to sit in boring meetings all day. Poor daddy, Sasha said, patting me on the head. The setting for my official meeting with Medvedev was suitably impressive. One of the palaces within the Kremlin complex, its high gilded ceilings and elaborate appointments restored to their former czarist glory. Our discussion was cordial and professional. At a joint press conference, we artfully finessed the continuing friction around Georgia and missile defense, and we had plenty of so-called deliverables to announce, including an agreed-upon framework for the negotiation 
of the new Strategic Arms Treaty, which would reduce each side's allowable nuclear warheads and delivery systems by up to one-third. Gibbs was more excited by Russia's agreement to lift restrictions on certain U.S. livestock exports, a change worth more than a billion dollars to American farmers and ranchers. Something folks back home actually care about, he said with a grin. That evening, Michelle and I were invited to Medvedev's dacha, a few miles outside the city center for a private dinner. From reading Russian novels, I'd imagined a larger but still rustic version of the traditional country home. Instead, we found ourselves on an enormous estate, cloistered in a bank of tall trees. Medvedev and his wife Svetlana, a cheerful matronly blonde with whom Michelle and the girls had spent much of the day, greeted us at the front door, and after a brief tour, we walked out through a garden to dine in a large wood-beamed gazebo. Our conversation barely touched on politics. Medvedev was fascinated by the Internet and quizzed me about Silicon Valley, expressing his desire to boost Russia's tech sector. He took a keen interest in my workout routine, describing how he swam for 30 minutes each day. We shared stories about our experiences teaching law, and he confessed his affection for hard rock bands like Deep Purple. Svetlana expressed concerns about how their 13-year-old son, Ilya, would manage adolescence with the added attention of being the president's son, a challenge Michelle and I understood all too well. Medvedev speculated that the boy would eventually prefer attending university abroad. We bid the Medvedevs farewell shortly after dessert, taking care that the members of our team were fully loaded into the travel van before our motorcade snaked out of the compound. Gibbs and Marvin had been entertained by members of Medvedev's team elsewhere on the property, plied with vodka shots and schnapps, putting them in a jovial mood that wouldn't survive the next morning's wake-up call. As Michelle fell asleep beside me in the darkness of the car, I was struck by just how ordinary the night had been. How, with the exception of the translators who'd sat discreetly behind us while we ate, we could have been attending a dinner party in any well-to-do American suburb. Medvedev and I had more than a few things in common. Both of us had studied and taught law, got on to marry and start families a few years later, dabbled in politics, and been helped along by older, cagier politicians. It made me wonder how much the differences between us could be explained by our respective characters and dispositions and how much was merely the result of our different circumstances. Unlike him, I had the good fortune of having been born in a nation where political success hadn't required me to ignore billion-dollar kickbacks or the blackmailing of political opponents. I met Vladimir Putin for the first time the following morning when I traveled to his dacha, located in a suburb outside Moscow. Our Russia experts, Mike McFall and Bill Burns, as well as Jim Jones, joined me for the ride. Having had some past interactions with Putin, Burns suggested that I keep my initial presentation short. Putin's sensitive to any perceived slights, Burns said, and in his mind, he's the more senior leader. You might want to open the meeting by asking him his opinion about the state of U.S.-Russian relations and let him get a few things off his chest. After turning through an imposing gate and continuing down a long driveway, we pulled up in front of a mansion where Putin welcomed us for the obligatory photo op. Physically, he was unremarkable, short and compact, a wrestler's build, with thin, sandy hair, a prominent nose, and pale, watchful eyes. As we exchanged pleasantries with our respective delegations, I noticed a casualness to his movements, a practiced disinterest in his voice that indicated someone accustomed to being surrounded by subordinates and supplicants, someone who'd grown used to power. 
accompanied by Sergei Lavrov, Russia's urbane foreign minister and former UN representative. Putin led us to a broad outdoor patio, where an elaborate spread had been arranged for our benefit, with eggs and caviar, breads and teas, served by male waiters in traditional peasant dress and high leather boots. I thanked Putin for his hospitality, noted the progress our countries had made with the previous day's agreements, and asked for his assessment of the U.S.-Russia relationship during his time in office. Burns hadn't been kidding when he said the man had a few things to get off his chest. I'd barely finished the question before Putin launched into an animated and seemingly endless monologue, chronicling every perceived injustice, betrayal, and slight that he and the Russian people had suffered at the hands of the Americans. He'd liked President Bush personally, he said, and had reached out after 9-11, pledging solidarity and offering to share intelligence in the fight against a common enemy. He'd helped the United States secure air bases in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan for the Afghan campaign. He'd even offered Russia's help in handling Saddam Hussein. And where had it gotten him? Rather than heed his warnings, he said, Bush had gone ahead and invaded Iraq, destabilizing the entire Middle East. The U.S. decision seven years earlier to pull out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and its plans to house missile defense systems on Russia's borders continued to be a source of strategic instability. The admission of former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO during both the Clinton and Bush administrations had steadily encroached on Russia's, quote, sphere of influence, while U.S. support for the so-called color revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan, under the specious guise of democracy promotion, had turned Russia's once friendly neighbors into governments hostile to Moscow. As far as Putin was concerned, the Americans had been arrogant, dismissive, unwilling to treat Russia as an equal partner, and constantly trying to dictate terms to the rest of the world, all of which, he said, made it hard to be optimistic about future relations. About 30 minutes into what was supposed to have been an hour-long meeting, my staffers started sneaking glances at their watches but I decided not to interrupt. It seemed clear that Putin had rehearsed the whole thing, but his sense of grievance was real. I also knew that my continued progress with Medvedev depended on the forbearance of Putin. After about 45 minutes, Putin finally ran out of material, and rather than trying to stick to our schedule, I began answering him point by point. I reminded him that I personally opposed the invasion of Iraq, but I also rejected Russia's actions in Georgia believing that each nation had the right to determine its own alliances and economic relationships without interference. I disputed the idea that a limited defense system designed to guard against an Iranian missile launch would have any impact on Russia's mighty nuclear arsenal, but mentioned my plan to conduct a review before taking further steps on missile defense in Europe. As for our proposed reset, the goal wasn't to eliminate all differences between our two countries, I explained. It was to get past Cold War habits and establish a realistic, mature relationship that could manage those differences and build on shared interests. At times, the conversation got contentious, especially on Iran. Putin dismissed my concerns about Iran's nuclear program and bristled at my suggestion that he suspend a pending sale of the powerful Russian-designed S-300 surface-to-air missile system to the regime. The system was purely defensive, he said adding that reneging on a contract worth $800 million would risk both the bottom line and the reputation of Russian arms manufacturers. But for the most part, he listened attentively. And by the end of what had turned into a two-hour marathon, he expressed openness, if not enthusiasm, for the reset effort. 
Of course, on all these issues, you will have to work with Dimitri, Putin told me as he walked me to my waiting motorcade. These are now his decisions. Our eyes met as we shook hands, both of us knowing that the statement he just made was dubious. But for now, at least, it was the closest thing I was going to get to an endorsement. The meeting with Putin wreaked havoc on the rest of the day's schedule. We raced back to Moscow, where I was slated to deliver the commencement address to bright-eyed young Russians studying international business and finance. Beforehand, in a holding room off the stage, I had a brief pull-aside with former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Seventy-eight years old and still robust, with the signature red birthmark splashed across his head, he struck me as a strangely tragic figure. Here was a man who'd once been one of the most powerful people on earth, whose instincts for reform and efforts at denuclearization, no matter how tentative, had led to an epic global transformation and earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. He now found himself largely disdained within his own country, both by those who felt he'd surrendered to the West and by those who considered him a communist throwback whose time was long past. Gorbachev told me he was enthusiastic about a reset and my proposals for a nuclear-free world, but after 15 minutes I had to cut the conversation short to deliver my speech. Although he said he understood, I could tell he was disappointed, a reminder for both of us of the fleeting, fickle nature of public life. Then it was off to an abbreviated Kremlin lunch with Medvedev in a ballroom of important personages, followed by a roundtable discussion with U.S. and Russian business leaders, where boilerplate appeals for greater economic cooperation were exchanged. By the time I arrived at the summit of U.S. and Russian civil society leaders that McFall had organized, I could feel jet lag kicking in. I was content to take a seat, catch my breath, and listen to the remarks of those speaking before me. It was my kind of crowd. Democracy activists, heads of nonprofits and community organizers, working at a grassroots level on issues like housing, public health, and political access. They mostly toiled in obscurity, jostled for money to keep their operations afloat, and rarely had a chance to travel outside their home cities, much less do so at the invitation of a U.S. president. One of the Americans was even someone I'd worked with during my organizing days back in Chicago. Maybe it was the juxtaposition of my past and my present that kept me thinking about my conversation with Putin. When Axe asked me for my impressions of the Russian leader, I said that I'd found him strangely familiar. Like a ward boss, except with nukes and a UN Security Council veto. This prompted a laugh, but I hadn't meant it as a joke. Putin did, in fact, remind me of the sorts of men who had once run the Chicago machine or Tammany Hall. Tough, street-smart, unsentimental characters who knew what they knew, who never moved outside their narrow experiences, and who viewed patronage, bribery, shakedowns, fraud, and occasional violence as legitimate tools of the trade. For them, as for Putin, life was a zero-sum game. You might do business with those outside your tribe, but in the end you couldn't trust them. You looked out for yourself first and then for your own. In such a world, a lack of scruples a contempt for any high-minded aspirations beyond accumulating power, were not flaws. They were an advantage. In America, it had taken generations of protest, progressive lawmaking, muckraking journalism, and dogged advocacy to check, if not fully eliminate, such raw exercises of power. That reform tradition was in large part what had inspired me to enter politics. And yet, in order to reduce the risk of nuclear catastrophe or another Middle East war, 
I just spent the morning courting an autocrat who no doubt kept dossiers on every Russian activist in the room and could have any one of them harassed, jailed, or worse, whenever he pleased. If Putin did go after one of these activists, how far would I go in taking him to task, especially knowing it probably wouldn't change his behavior? Would I risk the completion of START negotiations? Russian cooperation on Iran? And how did one measure such trade-offs anyway? I could tell myself that compromises existed everywhere, that in order to get things done back home, I'd cut deals with politicians whose attitudes weren't so different from Putin's and whose ethical standards didn't always bear scrutiny. But this felt different. The stakes were higher, on both sides of the ledger. Standing up finally to speak, I praised the people in the room for their courage and dedication and urged them to focus not just on democracy and civil rights, but also on concrete strategies to provide jobs, education, healthcare, and decent housing. Addressing the Russians in the audience, I said that America couldn't and shouldn't fight their battles for them, that Russia's future was for them to determine. But I added that I would be rooting for them, firm in my conviction that all people aspire to the principles of human rights, the rule of law, and self-governance. The room burst into applause. McFall beamed. I felt glad about being able to lift, however briefly, the spirits of good people doing hard and sometimes dangerous work. I believed that even in Russia, it would pay off in the long run. Still, I couldn't shake the fear that Putin's way of doing business had more force and momentum than I cared to admit, and that in the world as it was, many of these hopeful activists might soon be marginalized or crushed by their own government, and there'd be very little I could do to protect them. Chapter 20 the next time I met with Medvedev in person was in late September, when heads of state and government from around the world converged on Manhattan for the annual opening session of the UN General Assembly. Unga Week, we called it, and for me and my foreign policy team, it represented a 72-hour, sleep-depriving obstacle course. With roads blocked and security tightened, New York traffic was more hellish than usual, even for the presidential motorcade. Practically every foreign leader wanted a meeting, or at least a photo for the folks back home. There were consultations with the UN Secretary General, meetings for me to chair, luncheons to attend, receptions to be hosted, causes to be championed, deals to be brokered, and multiple speeches to be written, including a major address before the General Assembly, a sort of global State of the Union that, in the eight years we worked together, Ben and I somehow never managed to finish writing until 15 minutes before I was due to speak. Despite the crazy schedule involved, the site of the U.N. headquarters, its main building a soaring white monolith overlooking the East River, always put me in a hopeful, expectant mood. I attributed this to my mother. I remember as a boy, maybe nine or ten, asking her about the U.N. and having her explain how, after World War II, global leaders decided they needed a place where people from a diversity of countries could meet to resolve their differences peacefully. Humans aren't that different from animals, Bear, she told me. We fear what we don't know. When we're afraid of people and feel threatened, it's easier to fight wars and do other stupid things. The United Nations is a way for countries to meet and learn about each other and not be so afraid. As always, my mother possessed a reassuring certainty that despite humanity's primal impulses, reason, logic, and progress would eventually prevail. 
after our conversation, I imagined the going-ons at the U.N. to be like an episode of Star Trek, with Americans, Russians, Scots, Africans, and Vulcans exploring the stars together. Or the It's a Small World display at Disneyland, where moon-faced children with different skin tones and colorful costumes would all sing a cheerful tune. Later, for a homework assignment, I read the U.N.'s 1945 founding charter and was struck by how its mission matched my mother's optimism. To save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Needless to say, the UN hadn't always lived up to these lofty intentions. Like its ill-fated predecessor, the League of Nations, the organization was only as strong as its most powerful members allowed it to be. Any significant action required consensus among the five permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, the Soviet Union, later Russia, the United Kingdom, France, and China, each possessing an absolute veto. In the middle of the Cold War, the chances of reaching any consensus had been slim, which is why the UN had stood idle as Soviet tanks rolled into Hungary or U.S. planes dropped napalm on the Vietnamese countryside. Even after the Cold War, divisions within the Security Council continued to hamstring the UN's ability to tackle problems. Its member states lacked either the means or the collective will to reconstruct failing states like Somalia or prevent ethnic slaughter in places like Sri Lanka. Its peacekeeping missions, dependent on voluntary troop contributions from member states, were consistently understaffed and ill-equipped. At times, the General Assembly devolved into a forum for posturing, hypocrisy, and one-sided condemnations of Israel. More than one UN agency became embroiled in corruption scandals, while vicious autocracies, like Khamenei's Iran and Assad's Syria, would maneuver to get seats on the UN Human Rights Council. Within the Republican Party, the UN became a symbol of nefarious one-world globalism. Progressives bemoaned its impotence in the face of injustice. And yet I remain convinced that, for all its shortcomings, the UN served a vital function. UN reports and findings could sometimes shame countries into better behavior and strengthen international norms. Because the UN's work in mediation and peacekeeping, ceasefires had been brokered, conflicts had been averted, and lives had been saved. The UN played a role in more than 80 former colonies becoming sovereign nations. Its agencies helped lift tens of millions of people out of poverty, eradicated smallpox, and very nearly wiped out polio and guinea worm. Whenever I walked through the UN complex, my Secret Service detail brushing back the crowds of diplomats and staffers who typically milled along the wide, carpeted corridors for a handshake or a wave, their faces reflecting every shape and hue of the human family. I was reminded that inside were scores of men and women who pushed against boulders every day, trying to convince governments to fund vaccination programs and schools for poor children, rallying the world to stop a minority group from being slaughtered or young women from being trafficked. Men and women who had anchored their lives to the same idea that had anchored my mother an idea captured in a verse woven into a tapestry that hung in the great domed General Assembly Hall. Human beings are members of a whole, in creation of one essence and soul.
Ben informed me that those lines were written by the 13th century Persian poet Sa'adi, one of the most beloved figures in Iranian culture. We found this ironic, given how much of my time at Unga was devoted to trying to curb Iran's development of nuclear weapons. Apparently, Khamenei and Ahmadinejad didn't share the poet's gentle sensibilities. Since rejecting my offer of bilateral talks, Iran had shown no signs of scaling back its nuclear program. Its negotiators continued to stall and bluster in sessions with P5 plus 1 members, insisting that Iran's centrifuges and enriched uranium stockpiles had entirely civilian purposes. These claims of innocence were spurious, but they provided Russia and China with enough of an excuse to keep blocking the Security Council from considering tougher sanctions against the regime. We continued to press our case, and a pair of new developments helped bring about a shift in Russian attitudes. First, our arms control team, ably headed by nonproliferation expert Gary Seymour, had worked with the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, on a creative new proposal meant to test Iran's true intentions. Under the proposal, Iran would ship its existing stockpile of LEU to Russia, which would process it into HEU. Russia would then transport the HEU to France, where it would be converted into a form of fuel that met Iran's legitimate civilian needs, but had no possible military application. The proposal was a stopgap measure. It left Iran's nuclear architecture in place and wouldn't prevent Iran from enriching more LEU in the future. But depleting its current stockpiles would delay breakout capacity by up to a year, thus buying us time to negotiate a more permanent solution. Just as important, the proposal made Russia a key implementation partner and showed Moscow our willingness to exhaust all reasonable approaches when it came to Iran. During the course of UNGA, Russia signed off on the idea. We even referred to it as the Russia proposal, which meant that when the Iranians ultimately rejected the proposal at a P5 plus 1 meeting held later that year in Geneva, they weren't just thumbing their noses at the Americans. They were snubbing Russia, one of their few remaining defenders. Cracks in the Russia-Iran relationship deepened after I handed Medvedev and Lavrov an intelligence bombshell during a private meeting on the margins of Unga. We discovered that Iran was on the verge of completing construction of a secret enrichment facility buried deep inside a mountain near the ancient city of Qom. Everything about the facility, its size, configuration, and location on a military installation, indicated Iran's interest in shielding its activities from both detection and attack features inconsistent with a civilian program. I told Medvedev we were showing him the evidence first, before we made it public, because the time for half-measures was over. Without Russian agreement on a forceful international response, the chance for a diplomatic resolution with Iran would likely slip away. Our presentation seemed to rattle the Russians. Rather than try to defend Iran's actions, Medvedev expressed his disappointment with the regime and acknowledged the need for a recalibration of the P5 plus 1's approach. He went even further in public remarks afterward, telling the press that, quote, sanctions rarely lead to productive results, but in some cases, sanctions are inevitable. For our side, the statement was a welcome surprise, confirming our growing sense of Medvedev's reliability as a partner. We decided against revealing the existence of the comb facility during a U.N. Security Council meeting on nuclear security issues that I was scheduled to chair. Although the iconic setting would have made for good theater, 
we needed time to thoroughly brief the IAEA and other P5 Plus One members. We also wanted to avoid drawing comparisons to the dramatic and ultimately discredited Security Council presentation regarding Iraqi WMDs made by Colin Powell in the run-up to the Iraq War. Instead, we gave the story to the New York Times just before G20 leaders were scheduled to meet in Pittsburgh. The effect was galvanizing. Reporters speculated about possible Israeli missile strikes on Combe. Members of Congress called for immediate action. At a joint press conference with French President Sarkozy and British Prime Minister Brown, I emphasized the need for a strong international response, but refrained from getting specific on sanctions so as to avoid boxing in Medvedev before he'd had a chance to work through the issue with Putin. Assuming we could keep Medvedev engaged, we had just one more major diplomatic hurdle to clear. Convincing a skeptical Chinese government to cast a vote for sanctions against one of its main oil suppliers. How likely is that? McFall asked me. Don't know yet, I said. Turns out avoiding a war is harder than getting into one. Seven weeks later, Air Force One touched down in Beijing for my first official visit to China. We were instructed to leave any non-governmental electronic devices on the plane and to operate under the assumption that our communications were being monitored. Even across oceans, Chinese surveillance capabilities were impressive. During the campaign, they'd hacked into our headquarters computer system. I took it as a positive sign for my election prospects. Their ability to remotely convert any mobile phone into a recording device was widely known. To make calls involving national security matters from our hotel, I had to go to a suite down the hall fitted with a scientific, compartmented information facility, or SCIF, a big blue tent plopped down in the middle of the room that hummed with an eerie, psychedelic buzz designed to block any nearby listening devices. Some members of our team dressed and even showered in the dark to avoid the hidden cameras we could assume had been strategically placed in every room. Marvin, on the other hand, said he made a point of walking around his room naked and with the lights on. Whether out of pride or in protest wasn't entirely clear. Occasionally, the brazenness of Chinese intelligence verged on comedy. At one point, my commerce secretary, Gary Locke, was on his way to a prep session when he realized he'd forgotten something in his suite. Upon opening the door, he discovered a pair of housekeepers making up his bed while two gentlemen in suits carefully thumbed through the papers on his desk. When Gary asked what they were doing, the men walked wordlessly past him and disappeared. The housekeepers never looked up, just moved on to changing out the towels in the bathroom as if Gary were invisible. Gary's story generated plenty of headshakes and chuckles from our team, and I'm sure that someone down the diplomatic food chain eventually filed a formal complaint. But no one brought up the incident when we sat down later for our official meeting with President Hu Jintao and the rest of the Chinese delegation. We had too much business to do with the Chinese and did enough of our own spying on them to want to make us stink. This about summed up the state of U.S.-China affairs at the time. On the surface, the relationship we'd inherited looked relatively stable, without the high-profile diplomatic ruptures we'd seen with the Russians. Out of the gate, Tim Geithner and Hillary had met repeatedly with their Chinese counterparts and formalized a working group to address various bilateral concerns. In my meetings with President Hu during the London G20, We'd talked of pursuing win-win policies that could benefit our two countries. But beneath the diplomatic niceties lurked long-simmering tensions and mistrust, not only around specific issues like trade or espionage, but also around the fundamental question of what China's resurgence meant for the international order 
and America's position in the world. That China and the United States had managed to avoid open conflict for more than three decades was not just luck. From the start of China's economic reforms and decisive opening to the West back in the 1970s, the Chinese government had faithfully followed Deng Xiaoping's counsel to, quote, hide your strength and bide your time. It prioritized industrialization over a massive military buildup. It invited U.S. companies searching for low-wage labor to move their operations to China and cultivated successive U.S. administrations to help it obtain World Trade Organization, or WTO, membership in 2001, which in turn gave China greater access to U.S. markets. Although the Chinese Communist Party maintained tight control over the country's politics, it made no effort to export its ideology. China transacted business with all comers, whether democracies or dictatorships, claiming virtue and not judging the way other countries managed their internal affairs. China could throw its elbows around when it felt its territorial claims being challenged, and it bristled at Western criticism of its human rights record. But even on flashpoints like U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, Chinese officials did their best to ritualize disputes, registering displeasure through strongly worded letters or the cancellation of bilateral meetings, but never letting things escalate to the point where they might impede the flow of shipping containers full of Chinese-made sneakers, electronics, and auto parts into U.S. ports and a Walmart near you. This strategic patience had helped China husband its resources and avoid costly foreign adventures. It had also helped obscure how systematically China kept evading, bending, or breaking just about every agreed-upon rule of international commerce during its, quote, peaceful rise. For years, it had used state subsidies, as well as currency manipulation and trade dumping, to artificially depress the price of its exports and undercut manufacturing operations in the United States. Its disregard for labor and environmental standards accomplished the same thing. Meanwhile, China used non-tariff barriers like quotas and embargoes. It also engaged in the theft of U.S. intellectual property and placed constant pressure on U.S. companies doing business in China to surrender key technologies to help speed China's ascent up the global supply chain. None of this made China unique. Just about every rich country, from the United States to Japan, had used mercantilist strategies at various stages of their development to boost their economies. And from China's perspective, you couldn't argue with the results. Only a generation after millions died of mass starvation, China had transformed itself into the world's third-largest economy, accounting for nearly half of the world's steel production, 20% of its manufacturing, and 40% of the clothing Americans bought. What was surprising was Washington's mild response. Back in the early 1990s, Leaders of organized labor had sounded the alarm about China's increasingly unfair trading practices, and they'd found plenty of congressional Democrats, particularly from Rust Belt states, to champion the cause. The Republican Party had its share of China critics as well, a mix of Pat Buchanan-style populists enraged by what they saw as America's slow surrender to a foreign power, and aging Cold War hawks still worried about communism's godless advance. But as globalization shifted into overdrive during the Clinton and Bush years, these voices found themselves in the minority. There was too much money to be made. U.S. corporations and their shareholders liked the reduced labor costs and soaring profits that resulted from shifting production to China. U.S. farmers liked all the new Chinese customers buying their soybeans and pork. 
Wall Street firms, like the scores of Chinese billionaires looking to invest their newfound wealth, as did the slew of lawyers, consultants, and lobbyists brought on to service the expanding U.S.-China commerce. Even as most congressional Democrats remained unhappy with China's trading practices, and the Bush administration filed a handful of complaints against China with the WTO, by the time I took office, a rough consensus had emerged among U.S. foreign policy-making elites and big-party donors. Instead of engaging in protectionism, America needed to take a page from the Chinese playbook. If we wanted to stay number one, we needed to work harder, save more money, and teach our kids more math, science, engineering, and Mandarin. My own views on China didn't fit neatly in any camp. I didn't share my union supporters' instinctive opposition to free trade, and I didn't believe we could fully reverse globalization any more than it was possible to shut down the Internet. I thought that Clinton and Bush had made the right call in encouraging China's integration into the global economy. History told me that a chaotic and impoverished China posed a bigger threat to the United States than a prosperous one. I considered China's success at lifting hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty to be a towering human achievement. Still, the fact remained that China's gaming of the international trading system had too often come at America's expense. Automation and advanced robotics may have been the bigger culprit in the decline of U.S. manufacturing jobs, but Chinese practices, with the help of corporate outsourcing, had accelerated those losses. The flood of Chinese goods into the United States had made flat-screen TVs cheaper and helped keep inflation low, but only at the price of depressing the wages of U.S. workers. I'd promised to fight on those workers' behalf for a better deal on trade, and I intended to keep that promise. With the world's economy hanging by a thread, though, I had to consider when and how best to do that. China held more than $700 billion in U.S. debt and had massive foreign currency reserves making it a necessary partner in managing the financial crisis. To pull ourselves and the rest of the world out of the recession, we needed China's economy growing, not contracting. China wasn't going to change its trading practices without firm pressure from my administration. I just had to make sure we didn't start a trade war that tipped the world into a depression and harmed the very workers I'd vowed to help. In the run-up to our China trip, my team and I settled on a strategy to thread the needle between too tough and not tough enough. We'd start by presenting President Hu with a list of problem areas we wanted to see fixed over a realistic time frame, while avoiding a public confrontation that might further spook the jittery financial markets. If the Chinese failed to act, we'd steadily ratchet up the public pressure and take retaliatory actions, ideally in an economic environment that was no longer so fragile. To nudge China toward better behavior, we also hoped to enlist the help of its neighbors. That was going to take some work. The Bush administration's total absorption with the problems in the Middle East, as well as the Wall Street fiasco, had led some Asian leaders to question America's relevance in the region. Meanwhile, China's booming economy made even close U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea increasingly dependent on its markets and wary of getting on its bad side. The one thing we had going for us was that in recent years, China had started overplaying its hand, demanding one-sided concessions from weaker trading partners and threatening the Philippines and Vietnam over control of a handful of small but strategic islands in the South China Sea. U.S. diplomats reported a growing resentment towards such heavy-handed tactics, 
and a desire for a more sustained American presence as a counterweight to Chinese power. To take advantage of this opening, we scheduled stops for me in Japan and South Korea, as well as a meeting in Singapore with the ten countries that made up the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. Along the way, I denounced my intention to pick up the baton on an ambitious new U.S.-Asia trade agreement the Bush administration had started to negotiate, with an emphasis on locking in the type of enforceable labor and environmental provisions that Democrats and unions complained had been missing in previous deals, like the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. We explained to reporters that the overall goal of what we later called a pivot to Asia wasn't to contain China or stifle its growth. Rather, it was to reaffirm U.S. ties to the region and to strengthen the very framework of international law that had allowed countries throughout the Asia-Pacific region, including China, to make so much progress in such a short time. I doubted the Chinese would see it that way. It had been more than 20 years since I'd traveled to Asia. Our seven-day tour started in Tokyo, where I delivered a speech on the future of the U.S.-Japan alliance and met with Prime Minister Yukio Hatoyama to discuss the economic crisis, North Korea, and the proposed relocation of the U.S. Marine base on Okinawa. A pleasant, if awkward, fellow, Hatoyama was Japan's fourth prime minister in less than three years and the second since I'd taken office, a symptom of the sclerotic, aimless politics that had plagued Japan for much of the decade. He'd be gone seven months later. A brief visit with Emperor Akihito and Empress Michiko at the Imperial Palace left a more lasting impression. Diminutive and well into their seventies, they greeted me in impeccable English, with him dressed in a Western suit, and her in a brocaded silk kimono, and I bowed as a gesture of respect. They led me into a receiving room, cream-colored and sparsely decorated in the traditional Japanese style, and over tea they inquired about Michelle, the girls, and my impression of U.S.-Japan relations. Their manners were at once formal and self-effacing, their voices soft as the patter of rain, and I found myself trying to imagine the emperor's life. What must it have been like, I wondered, to be born to a father who'd been considered a god, and then forced to assume a largely symbolic throne decades after the Japanese Empire had suffered its fiery defeat.